to, we are from a long weekend, but also with the understanding that we are in our constituency period. But because we are one of those committees that are dealing with the bills, we then had to apply to, uh, to, to be granted permission so that we, we, we accommodate according to, to rules and, 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 and everything that regulates a bill to accommodate those that have made submission that they, they are requesting to do oral submissions. So we then had to apply and we were then granted permission uh, for two weeks to accommodate both these public hearings for, for, for both these, these bills. But then we were then humbly reminded that we must then understand that we still have, a, we are still within a constituency week, which then means uh, we'll have to, to do our constituency work. How we do that, we know for a fact that it depends on the on the on the political party so we are not in control of that please don't ask me as the chair how we are going to do that you will ask your political principals i would have thought i thought I would, I would have thought by now members have then been able to restructure their program uh, so that they are able to to to, to manage and jump and juggle between these two these two responsibilities that is why we are called public representatives we don't have time of our own having said that uh, b- before the, the 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 roll call let, let me welcome those that are to be with us from now until 7 p.m. In between, I think we'll have a, 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 a break so that uh, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, we give relief to our concentration uh, system. Uh, Mr. Sakaza, what then you will do, you will then start with the honorable members that are present and then indicate uh, to us which, which company is here. It's, it's the normal thing, the department will, 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 will do the introduction uh, through the one who is uh, leading the department because the department is to be with us, that's my understanding. The legal uh, person is also supposed to be with us, but we will hear from you, Mr. Sakaza, as you'll be doing the administration, uh, that the, the administration work. We 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 are still under level one, and we are then expected to we are expected to to adhere with 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 uh, with with the pandemic regulations. That is why we're having this virtual and which is then that is very important. House rules, those that are not going to speak will then have to mute their mics. Please, 
and preferably also mute your your video because we had some nasty experiences in other committees. We don't want to be subjected to that. We would like a person who is speaking to to show us his or her face, but also videos do have a challenge of of interfering with 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 the with the with the mic so if possible not unless you know that uh, your system is strong we will then appreciate that it will then be only the person that is 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 making a presentation i will now hand over to you uh, mr sakaza to take us through the roll call of the honorable members then from there we'll hear from who is here from the department, and then we'll hear who is here from the from our guest, and Mr. Sakaza will indicate who is the first uh, to 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 make an oral uh, presentation. Everybody must have his or her pen and her book. The attention is very is very crucial <clears throat> because we are to hear what exactly the, 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 the presenters are saying. Over to you, Honorable uh, Sakaza. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chair, and uh, good morning to my chairperson and uh, the members of the committee. Chair, we've got uh, on the roll call of the Portfolio Committee on Employment and Labor, we've got yourself, Chair, Honorable Dunjwa. We've got Honorable Nkabane. We've got Honorable Zuma, Honorable Ndabe, Honorable Makubele, Honorable Bakram, Honorable Kado, Honorable Inana, Honorable Mkondo, and Honorable um, Denner, for now chair from the Portfolio Committee. I haven't received any um, apology, so I'm just hoping uh, the, the rest of the members are still going to be joining in. Chairperson from the um, companies, uh, institutions, and organizations that are going to present today, We've got uh, Sakeliga, which is the first one to present, will be followed by the SAIRR, that is South African Institution of Race Relations. We also have CGE, which is uh, uh, going to present after uh, race. And then we've got the last one, which will be Kosatu, Mr. Matthew Parks. So it's Mr. Van Staden who's going to start from the Sakeliga followed by Anthea Jeffrey from the uh, race, and then uh, Mr. Dennis Matotoka from CGE, then Mr. Matthew Parks. They already have joined in, Chair, as I see on the list. Um, then from, from our um, admin side, we've got myself, Chair. We've got Shia, the committee assistant. Um, I'm still looking at other colleagues of mine, uh, like uh, the, the content advisor and the um, Resetter, they are still going to be joining in chair. And uh, chair, if I could just may say, um, it is it is live on all uh, uh, the, the so people must must uh, when they talk they must uh, switch on their mics and their video uh, uh, camera so that they can be seen because it's going to be a live broadcast chair. Thank you, chair. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Sakaza. Can we get from the department? 
Good morning. Good morning, Honorable Chair. My name is Virgil Seafield. I'm the Deputy Director General for Labor Policy and Industrial Relations. With me, I have a few colleagues. Uh, Chair, you have already uh, noted Mr. Tembikosi and Kalipi. I also have Niresh Singh. And with Niresh Singh, although they're using one computer, I also have Ntwaki Mamachela. She's the director uh, responsible for employment equity. Uh, uh, Tando Wababa has also joined the meeting from the minister's office, as well as Karabo Mahohane, uh, that is also from the Department of Employment and Labor. Thank you, Chair. I think as Mr. Sakaza has explained that this 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 sitting is live, so it then means uh, we then had to be very very careful, be professional, uh, uh, so that we don't have to be answering on on issues that are are not for the best interest of what we are here for. Having said that, uh, we'll then allow the, the, the first presenter, and uh, the first presenter will show us his or her own face, and uh, we will then uh, we, we, we will then be using uh, uh, English. We'll, I will conduct our public hearings in English. Unfortunately, I think I have to put that up front because I don't think we do have a, an, an interpretation system. Mr. Sakaza will indicate, but for now, we will then request that we do that through the medium of English. Our apologies. I'm aware that we have got seven languages. In, in our in 11 languages in our country. I'm aware we are supposed to be, uh, all of us are supposed to be able to speak all languages, but for, for, for to make this, this process uh, more comfortable, easy, uh, without any hostility, I will request that we, we stick to the medium of English until we are told otherwise as much as we are being listened by everybody. But unfortunately, for now, that is one of the disadvantages of, 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 of this whole, whole system. We'll hand over to the, to the first presenter who will introduce himself, tell us the company that he or she is coming from, and then make a presentation. I'm of the understanding that every presenter is given an hour and a half which includes presentation, questions of clarity. Honorable members, we are only asking questions of clarity. We are not engaging. Engagement has got its own separate process, but with the presenters, we will ask questions of clarity. I want to emphasize that. Thank you very much. Over to you, uh, Mr. Pete Leroux. 
Thank you, Madam Chairman. Uh, thank you for the um, introduction and the um, invitation to address the committee. Uh, my name is uh, Pete Leroux. I'm the Chief Executive of Business Organization Sarkalicha. It means Business League. Uh, our members number around 12,000 and range from sole proprietorships to big corporations uh, across industries and across uh, the country. Uh, we are a non-profit public interest organization and our purpose is to create favorable business environments. Uh, but this we do for the benefit alike of members as well as uh, all communities where our members do business and all individuals with whom they do business. Uh, healthy business communities are required for, for flourishing societies. And uh, that, is, that is our mission. Now, one of the uh, factors influencing the suitability or not of business environments uh, is legislation from Parliament. And the legislation under consideration here today is the Employment Equity Amendment Bill. Our presentation will comprise of two parts. First, uh, I shall outline three conceptual problems with the bill, and uh, I shall argue that these conceptual problems run so deep that it renders the bill unsuitable. Uh, and then second, Mr. Martin van Staden, my colleague, a legal fellow at Saakalicha, will comment on several specific problems in the proposed amendments, showing, uh, among other things, that the bill falls short of several uh, requirements of, of legality or, or legal requirements. Now, to, um, uh, up front, I could also say, uh, Madam Chairman, that we will unlikely take up uh, the full hour and a half of uh, the committee's time. Uh, we will likely uh, compl uh, complete our uh, verbal uh, part in, let's say, the next 20 minutes or so, in between me and Mr. Van Staden, 20, 25 minutes. Um, and then uh, we're open to questions. Uh, so... Um, there are at least three conceptual problems with the bill, and I shall deal with them one by one. But let me just start by outlining the main thrust of the amendment bill, because there are many, of course, uh, subsidiary or secondary aspects to it. And I'm going to focus only on what I consider to be the main thrust. The amendment bill proposes to make every business in the country, at every occupational level, at every workplace, limit its employment, limit its employment to the racial proportions prescribed by government. The policy behind this is the policy of representativity. And the bill expands on the, on the NOW Act by making it compulsory to implement, in addition now, the minister's targets in sectors um, sure to be expanded or uh, uh, growing in number instead of uh, companies setting their own targets as they used to do. And whereas before they would set their own targets and at worst be disallowed from doing business with the state for not meeting such targets, they would now face fines, regardless of whether they do business with the state. And once a fine is introduced uh, and uh, then uh, criminalization and so on is not long after that. In principle, it now makes it um, you will be penalized for not, not complying instead of uh, only not being allowed to take on some opportunities to do let's say, business with the state. Now, when the minister sets these targets, um, we call them targets, but in fact, uh, since they are compulsory, they, they should rather be, be called quotas or something much stronger um, because the implication um, was not only now that they're a precondition for state contracts or certificates uh, in section 53 of the act, but uh, with the fines in section 20 now of the principal act and amended by section six of the bill, these targets have to be set according to what you're told they're being set. They're not your own targets anymore. Um, the bill, moreover, expands the minister's discretion 
by allowing her to prescribe targets in addition to the yardsticks that we used before. Now, the yardsticks that we used before were the racial composition of the economically active population, at least um, that, that's more or less what it boiled down to or was supposed to boil down to. And where there are exceptions to this, um, because the, 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 um, the minister's discretion now extends to uh, sectoral determinations and uh, setting the targets for sectors and forcing all companies in those sectors to comply. Um, and these targets may now be uh, different from the economically active population, a huge discretion. My colleague will elaborate on this. Um, where there are exceptions, uh, a huge discretion. Now, where there are exceptions to the, uh, the, the main thrust that I've outlined now, um, as with the exemption for companies with fewer than 50 employees, these are for reasons of expediency. Um, and so uh, I would ask the uh, committee to consider that what is proposed to them um, the, the exceptions to that is for reasons of expediency. Um, and as Mr. Mkalipi, Chief Director of Labor Relations in the Department of Employment and Labor, uh, was uh, quoted as explaining last year, he said uh, in the media, he said, it's a give and take. We put the proposal of lessening the burden on small business to sweeten the carrot. Um, now, uh, I'm going to put all the sweet carrots aside and focus on the main thrust of the bill, because that is, this is what we should consider when we ask, is this legislation in the public interest? Does it serve the common good? Um, now, the first, so the three problems I'm going to outline now, of the first, which is um, that it introduces a penalty. Uh, we could call it a penalty. We could call it an onerous requirement. We could call it red tape. But it uh, introduces a drag factor on um, doing business in South Africa. And I don't mean the drag factor being employing people of different races. I mean the drag factor being prescribed and forced to comply with certain determinations by a bureaucratic process instead of by what is uh, required in the service of consumers and in the interests of the company and so on. So uh, this is the drag. It's, it's the same uh, drag that all legislation introduces uh, um, in, in principle, um, this is a very strong one. Now, what is the time? At what time are we introducing these strong measures, uh, these um, uh, significant additional requirements for compliance? We're introducing them at a time when uh, the economy uh, is very, very vulnerable. Um, in decades, uh, the world economy, possibly the world economy, even hasn't been as vulnerable as it is now, post-COVID-19. We've just seen the largest uh, decline in GDP on record, um, and now we're introducing something at a time when it, uh, unemployment is rife, at a time when um, social unrest is ticking up, at a time uh, when, um, uh, when food security, uh, and I mean food on the table for people because they do not have enough money to buy food, when that is at risk. We're introducing this legislation at this time. And this uh, is a, a, a conceptual problem because it is uh, something that uh, legislatures um, should uh, uh, consider when we legislate in the public or in the common interest. And so my, my first comment here is to the committee to consider the time at which this legislation is being proposed. And uh, I would uh, 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 suggest to the committee uh, that uh, it, it could inform the Department of Labor that this is not the suitable time uh, to, to do this. Uh, then the second conceptual problem is that success would mean failure. When I say that success would mean failure, I mean that success in terms of the bill 
um, even if it's impossible, but as insofar as it is pursued, success in terms of the bill would mean failure for a rich and flourishing society, in terms of being a rich and flourishing society, in terms of being a society with various communities um, uh, with, uh, with real diversity. I mean, it would be a, a failure for society if this bill succeeds. Why do I say so? Uh, well, let's start with considering what success would mean um, in terms of this bill. And I have to do that with reference to the yardsticks the bill proposes, the, uh, the pool of suitably qualified people with reference to the economically active population. Uh, I, I'm going to assume most of us are familiar with these terms, but let me just explain them as they um, have transpired in, in practice uh, over these years and, and insofar as, as that meaning can be inferred from the, from the bill and the act. Uh, so suitably qualified, um, well, refers to um, a, a subsection of the pool of economically active population. And when there's a reference to economically active population, it means the, uh, not the whole population of South Africa, but that group of it, which is of working age and either actively seeking work or already working. That is the uh, economically active part of the population. The bill then, uh, the, the thinking behind the racial representativity, or as it is sometimes called the equitable representation, but what is really meant is racial representativity, is to break down that economically active part into racial components, uh, which can be something like 75% uh, black, 10% uh, white, 10% colored, and uh, then another um, proportion uh, Indian. Um, that's the, the rough breakdown it usually happens in South Africa. And uh, that is then supposed to be the measure uh, by which all employment at every level, at, in every workplace, um, in every company should be measured. And if there's a variation between this racial breakdown of the economically active population and the uh, racial breakdown at every level, at every workplace, in every company, then um, it is uh, from the bill's perspective of uh, a breach and something to be corrected. Now, if the bill would be successful, um, somehow enforcing this correction and forcing every company at every level, at every workplace in the country to represent this, um, and I'll even put aside the problem of small employment numbers, maybe a small company of 10 or 50 or even 60, and even just work with big companies. What we require is for this big country of South Africa, where everybody is spread out across the country, where they are embedded in communities, uh, in family structures, where they are uh, embedded in different cultural communities and language groups, where they are tied to place other people. We require of the society to change in a way where this is spread out across the country, evenly and without distinction, because it's, um, we're, we're making do now with the Zoom and post-COVID, you can sort of work from home a little bit or a little bit more. But mostly employment means working, moving from one place to your place of employment. And so success for the bill would mean a large-scale relocation of uh, and uprootment of the communities um, uh, across the country because we would require of them to move around. Um, now, this applies to all um, of the racial uh, groups in South Africa um, and within those racial groups, different communities. 
Um, it, uh, there are different places across South Africa, different concentrations of racial groups of, uh, and of different communities. Now, uh, the, uh, Mr. Jimmy Manzile uh, Manye uh, is, was infamous or is infamous for a few years ago, um, remarking that this over, so-called over-concentration, in his words, of colored people uh, in the Western Cape should stop and they should be employed in other places across the country. Um, Mr. Mani, as, as crude as this uh, intention sounds, I think correctly um, uh, words and expresses what success would mean in terms of the bill. So, um, so this is the, the second major conceptual problem with the bill. It, um, it abstracts away from the, uh, the, uh, the elements that make people individual uh, that uh, that uh, make them flourishing. There, by by which I mean being seated and uh, and and uh, placed um, at a specific time somewhere in the country within a community within a network. We, we require actually a complete re-engineering of the way uh, the country is made up. Now, this is what the, you may very well, some of the committee members or the department may say, this is what we intend. I think this is what, the, what, what would be required for the bill to be successful. But to, I think uh, from the view of a flourishing society, from the view of uh, the uh, constitution of South Africa, and from the view of uh, what we've seen in this sort of um, social engineering experiments of the past 100, 200 years in the modern world, um, we should be very guard, guard very much against this and uh, this should serve to us uh, as a warning so even though some may consider it desirable um, I think this is an incorrect uh, 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 an incorrect understanding of what this would actually mean um, then I could um, uh, um, add to this point about um, the uh, the uh, what success would, would mean um, and just make specific mention that the Constitution of South Africa, because uh, um, let, me, let me rephrase this. I should add that uh, in the Constitution, um, there is reference to the public sector uh, being broadly representative of the uh, demographics of uh, the country. Um, in that uh, often is read in that it should be racially representative. But this is a very limited understanding of what um, being broadly representative of the country, of the population of the country could mean, and in fact do mean uh, on a proper reading. Um, so this, um, uh, the Employment Equity Amendment Bill apparently uh, seeks to transfer not only that narrow understanding from, of representativity with regard to the public sector, um, uh, it doesn't only seek to enforce this narrow understanding in the public sector, but now seeks to transfer this to every company at every place at every level um, in the private sector. And so we have this great expansion that is not constitutionally provided for. There is a constitutional provision for a broad representativity with regard to the public sector, but not uh, in the same way with the private sector. Um, and so this is something uh, that uh, I, I do not see the link between. I do not see a constitutional justification for, and uh, my, our, our legal advice uh, uh, cannot find legal justification for that either. So we would, um, it could be interesting for the committee to consider uh, how the department uh, and others say that this uh, is in fact possible, extending this narrow understanding with regard to the uh, public sector onto uh, the uh, private sector. 
Um, uh, also on this point of uh, representativity and uh, equitable representation, um, I could uh, remark that um, with regard to broad representativity uh, in terms of race in the public sector, this has been achieved um, more or less seven years ago or so. Um, and I base this on a study of which I was part at the time um, on the, from the Solidarity Research Institute, uh, the late uh, Mr. Paul Joubert did uh, great work there, and he uh, uh, simply scanned the annual reports of all the, um, all of several, I think about 40 of the major departments uh, that made up about 70% of government employment, and found that um, between them, the um, uh, the 74.8% of national government employees were black, 10.8% were colored, 2.2% were Indian, and 12.12% were white. And these were taken from 38 national departments uh, and their annual reports in 2012-13. So uh, already um, almost a decade ago, the public sector um, uh, was broadly representative in terms of race of the population of South Africa. Um, uh, now, uh, and this was, in fact, echoed uh, by Minister Lendiwe Sisulu in a parliamentary reply uh, in 2012 also, I think. So this is a common cause that the, uh, the government, the public sector already broadly represents. Um, now this problem is that the bill seeks to extend this to the private sector. Then finally, um, let me, or let me, before I move on to the next point, let me put some numbers to what I said earlier about relocation. Um, uh, what we would have to see for the bill to be successful um, uh, is a move of a, almost 200,000 white persons, too many in the Western Cape, spread out across other provinces. We would have uh, about 300,000 of them having to move out of Gauteng because there's an over-concentration of, of them in, in, the, uh, in, in Gauteng. We would have to see about 300,000 black Africans, move, too many in Limpopo, move to other places in the country, and 260,000 too many in KwaZulu-Natal move to other places in the country. Um, now, there's no problem with people moving around. What there is a problem with is if there's a government policy that forces people um, to move around and limits companies in their area from employing them. So we are, we are forcing the people in the places where they are so-called over-concentrated, whether they are black, colored, Indian or white, we are forcing them uh, by um, in interference in the market mechanism um, at the margin to seek employment elsewhere in the country. Um, this is not a recipe for success of that local community, and we're probably driving out most of the most capable and enterprising members of those areas. So um, this policy may very well, as a side effect, uh, in fact, very well, if it is successful, will have the side effect of dooming um, and very much harming the vitality of communities um, uh, in places where, uh, all across the country, wherever there is a so-called over-concentration um, whether that be black, colored, Indian, or white. Um, and it may also be good to point, uh, just to remind the committee here that the bill often refers not only to national demographics, but also to pro uh, provincial demographics, and now as well the sectoral targets. So we're going to see this web of uh, interactions um, that can only be um, very much harmful to the prospects of uh, employment of whatever race you are. Then my final uh, conceptual problem is the one on racial classification. Now, it, is, it has become common practice. Well, it has become common practice. Um, it's a practice that has been continued 
um, by the state uh, in South Africa to racially uh, classify people. Now, the mode by which it is done um, has changed over time. And there was certainly a time in the mid-90s, let's say early mid-90s, when most of uh, the trend was for racial classification by the state to, uh, to stop or to be, um, to be guarded against. But uh, we are seeing in this bill another extension and uh, another thrust to the um, uh, animal, another, uh, to, the, to the movement of racially classifying people by the state. Um, uh, so there are many complications that arise when states impose racial classification. And uh, it appears that it is more prudent for a state to avoid this quagmire. Now, I understand that it is the practice, but uh, we cannot uh, evade that this conceptual problem of the bill requiring racial classification, of the bill requiring yardsticks um, uh, for racial classification. And um, not in the not too distant future, we will see disputes about racial classification and we will have to uh, find, we will, the courts will at some point be confronted um, with what is race, having to define race, having to reassign people's racial classifications. These are all implied when we have bills that require a racial classification in the strict kind of sense which this bill uh, does. Um, and so, um, as a matter of justice and morality, um, it, it is prudent to avoid racial classification um, in the way it is being done. Um, it is prudent to avoid this kind of search for objective criteria and, uh, and, and uh, definitions by which uh, people are forced to consider others in terms of race instead of, of the variety of aspects that make up their uh, individual uh, personality or person. Um, and so uh, let me conclude this, uh, this point here um, that uh, to, to just uh, reiterate the, the, the three points I've made. The first is that uh, the, the time of this bill um, is possibly the worst time in living memory for introducing red tape um, and a drag on the economy. And just to reiterate, I'm not saying um, uh, that uh, by any appointment of any person of any race is a drag. The drag here is the ministerial determinations, the quotas, uh, the uh, new uh, sectoral definitions being designated or not, the compliance arrangements. Um, and then, of course, the, um, the, the substance of the bill itself, which means people would be forced to search employment elsewhere instead of places where they are so-called over-concentrated. Um, the second conceptual problem with the bill is that um, its success would mean the failure for society. The bill's success in terms of, um, uh, of uh, achieving a country that is evenly spread out with uh, every company at every, in every workplace, at every occupational level, uh, reflecting the racial demographics of the country, whether it be of the economically active population or otherwise, um, that would mean an uprootment of community. It would mean social destabilization and hardship for the people who are forced to try and comply with this because the opportunity for employment would be otherwise limited. And then uh, finally, my uh, point is that um, there, is, uh, there is the element of racial classification and this bill strengthens something from which the country should be moving away instead of moving toward which is defining race 
trying to determine objective criteria for racial classification um, and inevitably running into confrontations in court, uh, confrontations uh, uh, between communities in public debate and so on about race uh, and racial classification. Um, and so uh, in the end, uh, um, uh, Madam Chairman, it is uh, the bill, uh, we strongly advise against uh, the acceptance of the bill. I've outlined some of the conceptual problems, how to deal with them, uh, we think is um, not possible within the uh, intentions of the bill as it is developed. And so there would be have to be a, a rethinking of what the bill wants to achieve, what success would look like, and why that success would be beneficial for uh, the country. Um, thank you. I would like to, uh, with your permission, hand over to my colleague, Mr. Martin van Staden, a legal fellow at Saakliga, for uh, some of the specific legislative uh, or legal comments on aspects of the bill. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chair and honorable members of the community. Thank you, uh, Pete, for, uh, for that uh, very good introduction to our substantive concerns with the bill. Um, my remarks will be limited to technical issues in the bill itself from a legislative drafting and constitutional standards point of view. Um, as you have heard, my colleague, uh, Mr. Leroux, has already discussed the uh, substantive issues emanating from the bill. And I would very much like to emphasize that uh, those issues uh, should be considered as our overriding concerns. And what I'm about to say are, um, are really subsidiary, um, but nonetheless uh, quite important to bear in mind if the committee uh, and parliament intends to continue uh, a pace of this bill, uh, despite our, our considerations, which I would very much uh, appreciate, uh, and I think society would appreciate if, the, if parliament does not do so. I must note at the start, honorable members, that uh, the concerns we have about the technical drafting issues uh, are not limited to this bill in particular. Uh, but it is a trend uh, amongst government's legislative drafters in general. So you might want to respond to me um, that the bill is written just as any other South African bill is written. And you would be correct. Uh, that is, however, precisely the problem that uh, I wish to address. Uh, there is a tendency to make these very mistakes that I will point out in throughout government. It does not matter which department or uh, uh, committee, even private members bills make these mistakes. Um, uh, so that uh, that's just something to note. The first example of this is clause four of the bill. It provides for the, the, the determination of numerical targets by the Minister of Employment and Labor. The Minister may, in, uh, by notice, identify the sectors where these targets will be applicable. Now, during any other verbal presentation to Parliament, I would pause here and explain that this provision is problematic because it contains no guiding or restraining criteria with which the Minister must comply in their numerical targets determinations and their sectoral identifications. However, the clause also provides that the minister themselves may prescribe criteria that guides this identification. Honorable members, this makes no sense. The idea that criteria must be prescribed in legislation to guide the exercise of discretionary or delegated lawmaking powers is closely associated with the rule of law, which, as you know, is a foundational principle of South Africa's constitutional order. The reason for this rule of law requirement is simple. Only Parliament, in other words, you, honorable members, uh, in plenary session is clothed with the authority to make law, not ministers or officials. While ministers and officials can determine the technical implementation of parliamentary laws, 
only parliament can determine the substance of law. Uh, you are elected honorable members, uh, officials in the Department of Labor and Employment are not elected. Uh, it is such that parliament, when it assigns discretionary or delegated lawmaking powers in legislation to the executive, must prescribe criteria, criteria and guidelines in the legislation itself uh, for how those powers must be exercised. In the absence of such criteria, the minister or official with the power is enabled to make decisions arbitrarily, capriciously, and unfortunately, self-interestedly, uh, which means that uh, whenever you find these provisions in legislation that bestows these wide uh, open uh, discretionary powers, we are very, uh, in a very real sense, opening the door to corruption, where uh, uh, officials, uh, certainly the bad apples, uh, which we cannot deny there are, will be seeking favor with companies, for instance, by saying, if you give me X, I will not impose this burden that the legislation empowers me to impose on you, on your business, but pay me a bribe and uh, uh, that won't happen. That is exactly the type of situation that broad, undefined discretionary powers enables, and we must guard against that. Now, clause four is perplexing and uh, dare I say nonsensical, because it gives the minister themselves the power to prescribe criteria for their own exercise of discretionary powers. In other words, the minister has to make the rules with which, way, which, with which they themselves must comply. This is circular reasoning, and uh, quite frankly, as any uh, first-year law student who has had a course in legal theory will tell you, uh, circular reasoning has no place in jurisprudence of which uh, le uh, legislation forms a very important part. Indeed, it is our most important source of law. It is Parliament, not the Minister, who must prescribe the criteria for the identification of economic sectors for numerical targets. This is a substantive legal issue because it is about deciding to whom certain rules will apply. It is not a technical or implementation uh, issue. We therefore recommend that if Parliament wishes to proceed with this bill, which we hope uh, is not the case, uh, with, because of its very objectionable substantive content, Clause 4 must be revised to remove the Minister's power to prescribe criteria, and that a subclause must ideally be inserted, inserted wherein Parliament itself defines the criteria for the identification of economic sectors. However, Clause 4 is problematic for another reason, it provides that the minister may, by notice, set numerical targets for identified economic sectors for the purpose of ensuring equitable representation. Uh, but this notice may contemplate different numerical targets for different occupational levels, subsectors, or regions within a sector, or on the basis of any other relevant factor. Uh, this provision contains no guiding or restraining criteria that circumscribes the minister's power, and as such, it uh, amounts to an unqualified discretion. This is particularly pro problematic given that this aspect of clause 4 clearly contemplates differentiation and racial differentiation at that. Differentiation can very easily become unconstitutional, unfair discrimination. This is why it is of the utmost importance that Parliament set down detailed criteria for how the Minister must exercise this power. Indeed, the power to differentiate between sectors and subsectors, if it is to be exercised, is a power that only Parliament has, not the Minister. 
As you might have concluded from the presentation of my colleague, our preferences were clause four and by implication, any other clause that owes its functioning to clause four to be removed from the bill, uh, primarily for substantive reasons. But without taking into account the drafting issues I have outlined, even if this clause remains, they, uh, they will be tainted by incongruence with the rule of law as a foundational principle of our constitution, which would make the, the legislation very much uh, unconstitutional. Clause 12 of the bill furthermore provides that the minister may only issue a certificate of compliance, uh, thereby allowing, for instance, enterprises to tender for state contracts if the minister is satisfied that the business has complied with the miracle targets that the minister has set. We fear that the minister's satisfaction is an insufficient legal control on a discretionary power. Clause 4 must be revised to provide that the minister must issue a certificate of must must not may must issue a certificate of compliant, uh, compliance if the business has complied with the requirements set out in the act. Um, it must not be discretionary, but in fact must be automatic. This is of course, uh, this of course must be heeded in light of the substantive outline uh, concerns that uh, we have with these certificates and their very nature as uh, resting on the basis of racial uh, classification. Honorable, honorable members, I have some final remarks on the lack of an impact assessment accompanying the bill. Uh, as I'm sure you know, according to a policy document published by the Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation in 2015, all new government interventions, be they policy documents, uh, regulations, or legislation that is prepared by government departments, must be accompanied by a socioeconomic impact assessment, which is part of the DPME's socioeconomic impact assessment system. Uh, whether the Department of Employment and Labor regards itself as bound by this DPME policy is uh, fortunately not a matter that uh, civil society groups such as ourselves have to concern ourselves with. Uh, that is indeed an issue that uh, the departments must uh, uh, resolve amongst themselves. But for as long as the 2015 DPME policy remains on the books, as it does, uh, we will regard it as applicable. And uh, in fact, it is a very uh, a good policy, in fact, uh, by requiring these impact assessments. It is concerning, therefore, that uh, we at least have not had sight of such an uh, socioeconomic impact assessment accompanying the Employment Equity Amendment Bill. Now, the only indication that one might exist is the memorandum of the bill. Which, uh, in which it is claimed that the implementation of the bill would cost the, proven, the provinces, presumably provincial treasuries and governments, nothing, uh, and that it would uh, cost the Department of Employment and Labor a mere 1.2 million rand. Now, if such an impact assessment does exist, I would amply ask the secretary or anyone else who has access to that document to please send it to us um, and make it publicly available for South Africans to interrogate. However, because we have not been able to find a socioeconomic impact assessment, um, we assume that one was in fact not conducted as required by the 2015 DPME policy. Now, honorable members, if this is the case, it is highly concerning. Impact assessments serve an incredibly important uh, purpose, and that is why we, uh, we in fact regard the 2015 DPME policy as, as a good policy from government. 
Impact assessments help both government and the public understand what the costs, benefits, and most importantly, the unforeseen or unintended consequences of a given intervention might be. If the inter intervention will yield mostly positive and beneficial consequences, as I assume everyone uh, working for government wants all new interventions to do, then it is in fact in the interest of the department uh, that has prepared the legislation to make this known, to tell South Africa, if we implement this legislation, look at the facts, look at these statistics and these projections for how society will benefit from what we are doing here. However, on the other hand, if the department expects detrimental consequences to result, it makes rational sense that the department would rather not conduct an impact assessment, or if it did conduct one, not to publish it. So if the department knows that what we are busy with here will in fact uh, harm the economy, will in fact harm society, then it, it would make perfect sense for it not to do an impact assessment, for it not to publish the impact assessment, because it would be embarrassed by, uh, by that fact being revealed. Um, so we must look very uh, um, suspiciously at the fact that no impact assessment exists, or if one does exist, that it has not been adequately published. The fact that it is not acceptable at all, even if the uh, legislation or the intervention's consequences will be damaging, uh, we as South Africans simply must know uh, what the government at least thinks the consequences of certain interventions will be. Now, the say-so of a minister or an official or a director general saying this will be good because of these uh, reasons, that is simply insufficient. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opinion exercise where someone is uh, giving their strongly held opinion on, on what the consequences would be, but that is simply not sufficient. We need to see uh, economic projections. We need to see uh, comparisons of similar policies, for instance, that have been adopted around the world and whether those countries have had uh, success, whether there has been prosperity as a result of those policies. And if no other country has, in fact, tried what we are trying, that must also be known. Uh, be, be made known in such an impact assessment. Now, without an impact assessment having been published, we regard the uh, legislative process to be incomplete and out of order. Uh, we ask that an impact assessment be conducted and be published, and then that the public participation should at least restart anew so that the impact assessment itself can be discussed uh, between the public and the department and between the public and parliament. Uh, and then that the, the bill can be reconsidered in light of the impact assessment. What we simply cannot accept, however, is Parliament as our elected representatives adopting a bill without having familiarized themselves, in fact, yourselves, honorable members, with the likely consequences of that bill. Uh, as South African citizens, uh, as South African business people, we simply cannot have legislators shooting in the dark, as it were, and potentially undermining the uh, growth and employment prospects of South Africa. Uh, as you know, uh, this is very trite. Parliament is there to serve the public uh, and uh, in fact act on a mandate from the public. And uh, part of that mandate is that the public assumes that Parliament knows what it is doing when it adopts a new bill. Uh, but in the, in the absence of an impact assessment, uh, we, we cannot assume that Parliament does, in fact, is familiar with, uh, with the consequences that might result. 
Now, the lack of an impact assessment, furthermore, gives us reason to doubt the confident declarations in the Bill's memorandum that legislation will cost the provinces nothing and will cost the Department of Employment and Labor only 1.2 million rand. On what are these declarations based? Uh, we cannot simply take it as an article of faith that uh, these, this is the reality. We need to see some evidence at least. Honorable members, as a portfolio committee, you have a special duty to provide oversight over what the departments in our government uh, does. Uh, you are indeed best placed to insist that before the Department of Employment and Labor sends you anything for, for approval, including this bill, it must do an impact, assess, an impact study on that intervention, um, or, or at least have one conducted, so that you will know what you are dealing with as our representatives. Before this bill can proceed, we therefore humbly ask that you send it back to, uh, to the department, uh, hopefully on the basis of our substantive uh, concerns, and in fact say that this is an unacceptable bill for, uh, for substantive reasons. But if you, if you agree with the substantive reasons of the bill and you wish to proceed with it, uh, it would still need to be sent back so that uh, an, uh, a credible and independent impact assessment on the bill and its implications can be conducted. Because only then will we be able to uh, engage about the merits of the bill uh, in, a, in a substantive and in, in a real way. Uh, because currently we are, uh, as I said earlier, shooting in the dark, we are uh, grasping at straws. Now, in summary, honorable members, I have pointed out three things that are problematic from a technical perspective as regards uh, this employment equity amendment bill. The first is that clause four is presently quite nonsensical. It empowers the minister to set criteria for themselves. Uh, we cannot have people making the rules that they themselves must occupy, uh, comply with, uh, making your own rules, unfortunately, uh, at least as far as government is concerned, is not an acceptable uh, state of affairs when one approaches this issue from a constitutionalist perspective. Parliament, Parliament, of course, must set the criteria in the legislation itself that must guide the minister as the functionary in their uh, exercise of discretion. The second uh, is that clause 12 is problematic because it deals with the minister's satisfaction. Uh, such a subjective criterion will not do. Instead, it is a, uh, if a business has in fact complied with the requisite requirements of the bill, it must be automatically uh, granted a, a certificate of compliance. It must be a box checking exercise. In other words, an official must uh, analyze the position of the business as it complied. Indeed, they get the certificate. It must not be left over to the uh, subjective uh, whims of any, uh, any person in the executive government. The third and final item is that uh, either no impact assessment was conducted on the bill which I submit would be a reckless state of affairs, or no impact assessment has been published, uh, which would be a very dishonest state of affairs. Uh, both of these options are simply unacceptable. We need a quantification of the consequences, both intended and far more importantly, unintended, and uh, both foreseen and again, far more importantly, unforeseen, that this legislation will bring about in our economy and in our society. As a last note, honorable members, I wish to emphasize again that our preference would be for this bill not to be adopted in any way, shape or form, 
because it is uh, fundamentally incompatible with the non-racial promise of our constitution. In this regard, the Principal Act, the Employment Equity Act, is also exceedingly problematic. So please do not interpret my remarks about the technical aspects of this bill, only, uh, only about these technical aspects as an endorsement of its substantive content. It's, it is certainly not that. Honorable members, I thank you for your time and for the opportunity. And uh, myself and Mr. LaRue would uh, very gladly take your questions. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. LaRue and Mr. Fun, what? Fun I hope I'm not. Uh, uh, thank you very much. It was quite an interesting uh, presentation. What now we will do, honorable members, is that uh, a reminder we are asking them questions of clarity. And in, in, in asking questions of clarity, we will then uh, 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 dot, record those. And after we are done with that, if they want to, if they if they want to remain, it's fine. If they want to leave, it's also it's also up to them. So what I will do, honourable members, now, I will uh, I will then allow members to to ask uh, questions of clarity. If you engage, I will, I will, I will, I will, you will be out of order. Don't engage, just ask questions of clarity. I want to emphasize that. Any, any takers? Please, can we, can we do this? I'm of the understanding that our gadgets have got a, a, a system of showing hands. So it's Michael, it's Honorable Kado, it's Honorable Nkondo, it's Honorable Dana. Any other hand? Any other hand? And uh, I'm trying to get my, I'm going to, I'm trying to get my hand. My hand also is up. Any other hand? Any other hand? If, if a member has got a problem with, with, with raising hands, then you will indicate. Uh, Honorable Kado? Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you to the presenters for their submission. I am broadly sympathetic to the analysis, but my question for clarification is this. Uh, Mr. LaRue identified the timing of the bill as a problem. And I wanted to ask him whether this is really a conceptual problem as such with the bill, uh, or is he implying that there would be a better time to introduce this bill? That the fact that we've suffered serious economic decline in recent times um, suggests that this is not a good time for the bill, but would there be a better time to introduce this bill in his view? And how would you respond to the criticism that we've had the Employment Equity Act for 20, 23 odd years, and the private sector still doesn't broadly reflect, reflect the way 
our population looks. Uh, I would just like uh, for Mr. Larue to clarify his comments around uh, the timing of the bill as a conceptual problem. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable Kado. Honorable Nkonto. Um, thanks, Chair. Uh, good morning to you and to colleagues, um, um, the presenters. Um, I also welcome the presentation. Um, the questions that I have, Chair, uh, number one, it's um, the referred race um, a breakdown. And the Western Cape was um, presented as an, as an example. I just want to check with Mr. Liru as to the way they perceive um, a, 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 this act, a, 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 the other way around. Are they not promoting people to not to be able to move from the former Bantu stands and seek employment elsewhere? Uh, because to me, seemingly, they want the, the, the status quo to remain. And then the second one is the clause four that uh, they are talking about. I want to know which section or clause of the constitution is contrary to a, a clause four, the one that they are referring as differentiation and unfair discrimination or uh, 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 somehow um, uh, 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 reversing uh, 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 the, 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 the discrimination of um, the former, the former uh, uh, regime. Um, that will be my two questions, uh, Chair, thanks. Thank you, Honorable Dana. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you for the presentation. I just have two questions of clarity. The first one is to Mr. Van Staden with regards to Clause 4 of the bill. Um, he mentioned that there is a lack of detailed criteria when it comes to the minister's power um, to be exercised with regards to numerical targets. And I'd like to know if you can give us an example um, what he would suggest would be um, would be detailed criteria in this case. And then my second question of clarity, Chair, is to the department. And I would like to know, um, was indeed a socioeconomic impact assessment done? If it was done, could it please be provided to the committee? If it was not done, why was it not done? And what is um, the, the motivation of the bill then uh, based on if a socioeconomic impact assessment was not done. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Dana. Honorable Mugabe. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. I'm not sure whether I'm loud able because I have flu. Um, I have one question. Uh, on the first presenter, he said the success means failure and explained the, the issue of uh, the variety of aspects uh, in terms of racial breakdown. 
can you elaborate on a variety of aspects what he meant uh, in relation to racial uh, differentiation? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Honorable Mutabe. For, for me, is a, a, a question that an utterance, should I say an utterance or a statement that uh, Mr. Van Staden referred to in terms of the role of the legislative arm of the state, which is uh, the committee. But which measuring, which, which, which measuring stick have you used uh, to then say we are shooting ourselves in the dark? Two, I just want to get clarity if you are familiar with the rules of the National Assembly. Because if, if you then respond to that, I, I, there is a correction that I want to make. But first, I don't want to make that correction without checking from you if you are familiar with the rules that governs the work of, of all public representatives, including committees, including everything. That, 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 that will be, I think the, 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 the other one has been asked by, by Honorable Kado and Honorable Mkondo, but I really want to check that uh, we, we what, what, why, measuring stick that you, you, you are, you, you, you think that we are shooting, because if you say we are shooting ourselves in the dark, you are implying that we don't know anything. We will then now, uh, uh, allow uh, both uh, both presenters to 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 respond to the questions. When you then be responding to the questions, you'll be directly responding to the questions. You won't, by default, make a another presentation, but you'll be responding to the questions that you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Whoever wants to start, it's up to you. I'm not going to be prescriptive. Thank you, thank you, Madam uh, Madam Chairman. Um, uh, I uh, I'd like to respond to all. I, there was one question before. I think you asked your questions of, of a gentleman. Um, the sound was not very good, and I I could not hear that question. So if I uh, do not address it, I would appreciate if it could just be repeated to me. But let me see uh, how far I get. So the first one is regarding the timing of the bill. Now, that is, of course, an astute observation and question, um, Mr. Cardo, uh, to ask me whether there would ever be an appropriate time for the bill. Uh, there would be times that are uh, less inappropriate. There are only times that are less inappropriate for this bill. Um, <laughs> this is the most inappropriate time. Um, and now if, uh, you, you ask whether this is indeed a conceptual problem. Uh, you're correct. I could I could classify that as, as something else, not as a conceptual problem, unless I uh, and this is what I the, the link that I try to draw is to say that in, in conceptualizing legislation, uh, the object of legislation should always be the common interest, serving the common interest or the, uh, the public interest in some way. And in conceptualizing uh, legislation, one uh, should reflect on the environment within which. And the environment, I mean, including the time um, at which uh, that legislation is being proposed. 
because it is in within that within that context that the legislation will take its effect. And so, uh, something that um, is is unaffordable at some point, or let's say more expensive, could be less expensive in terms of um, the the consequences at some other point in time. So. Um, uh, so, so to that, the answer, there is only a less, uh, less undesirable time to, uh, to introduce this bill. There is no desirable uh, time. This is a, is a problematic uh, bill for the other reasons, as I've outlined. Now, um, you're, you also asked um, the Employment Equity Bill uh, Act has been, uh, in fact, in, in force for many years. Yes, it was introduced under then Minister Titu Mbuweni when he was Minister of Labour in the late 90s or in the mid 90s. And um, it's true that the bill has, um, has had many years, but the question is, um, was this always the intention of the bill, of the Act? Was it always the intention, and if it was, was it a legitimate intention of the Act to, into, to make sure that every company in the country, at every workplace, yeah, branch one, branch two, branch three, every workplace, at every level, top management, junior management, med management, however you want to define every occupational level, should be reflective of the racial breakdown of the country. Um, uh, I think that it is. Um, uh, uh, I think that is that is not what the bill legitimately could have been its intention. If it was it in, in, its intention, it certainly is outside the bounds of what is uh, uh, provided for in the constitution. A point that I will get to uh, shortly. So, um, but but also you may say uh, you or anybody else might might object and say, but in a in a in a in a just country, in an equitable a country of equality, it must mean um, that there is uh, discrimination if a company does not reflect the racial demographics of, uh, of, of, of some aggregate of the society, in this case, let's say the national racial breakdown. If that is our yardstick, then if that is our measure for success, then the, the country will fail. And uh, it will fail um, because it will detract from the individuality of, of people, of, of their networks, of the natural ways in which different communities move around countries. We, when we look at the world, there are different communities of people all around them. And uh, it might be an interesting thought experiment to say, is it a just world if every company in the world reflects the racial demographics of the world at every uh, occupational level at every workplace in every company. Um, if it's to, to present the question at such a grand scale, I think makes its internal contradictions and it's undesirably uh, more crisply clear. Um, but uh, but uh, in, the, in the same way, just because we want to do this on a smaller scale, uh, we want to do this to 55 uh, plus million people in a country of 122 million square kilometers or something or 240. Um, and uh, so that is the, uh, um, uh, that is the, 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 what I want to suggest. It is that, the, that if that, if this is the object, complete racial representativity at every level, at, for every company, at every workplace, it is not a desirable uh, uh, object and neither is it provided for in the constitution. As much as we have become accustomed to thinking in these terms, it is not the way a free society functions. Now societies do change and this brings me to the uh, question by uh, Ms. McContu. Um, uh, are we at all suggesting that people should not seek employment elsewhere? No, again, the history of the world shows us that people move around. Um, and people sometimes move around 
um, I could say in a natural way, and with that I mean out of their own volition. Um, when they find more desirable opportunities elsewhere and they seek to um, get gainful employment there um, or move there for other reasons. I've, I've no objection to that. I think that um, to try and force people to stay where they are is, uh, is harmful and unacceptable, and, but so is to force people to move. And this bill is instead of um, forcing people to stay where they are, forcing them to move somewhere. And South Africa's own history has examples of that, forcing people to move somewhere else. Now, the precise mechanism did change, but, uh, but if, the, if the moral objection we have to forcing people to move somewhere else through the legislation um, by preventing them from getting gainful employment somewhere um, because they're so-called overconcentrated and, and uh, creating an artificial way of getting them somewhere else, it is, it is a... It is a modern and a new and another form of a pernicious uh, labor migrant system. Um, and it uproots communities um, where, where they are. We can say that um, that is not our intention, but if the bill is successful in what it seeks to achieve, what it states its objections are, its objects or um, its goals are, then that is what, what we have to confront. That is the essence of what we deal with. So um, the uh, this is not an argument for a status quo of keeping people in the country where they are. It is an, an argument for understanding that um, some things heal only with time uh, and some artificial um, uh, and greatly harmful restrictions forcing people to move somewhere else in, in the past um, cannot be remedied by uh, another blunt uh, removal and relocation of people, with, uh, even if by less direct means um, in, in the form of this. Um, I, the, the question specifically around the constitutional clause, um, the relevant clause here is uh, section 195 of the constitution, paragraph 1 um, and section 1, uh, or sub, subset, uh, first one there. It says uh, public administration must be governed and uh, by the democratic values and principles enshrined in the constitution, including the following principles. And then principle uh, I says public administration must be broadly representative of the South African people with employment and personnel management practices based on ability, objectivity, fairness, and the need to redress the imbalances of the past to achieve broad representation. This is the, um, the, uh, the, the instruction, uh, the constitutional instruction regarding broad representation and the public sector to which um, I, I referred. Um, then, um, hoping I do not skip any questions. If I do, please just repeat them, then I couldn't hear them cl clearly. Um, is, uh, I think that I, uh, that I covered it. I'll leave the questions uh, of the other to my, uh, to my colleague, um, and he's welcome to refer back to me if he wants any of those to, to me to address. Thank you very much. Um... Yes, so I believe the first question addressed to uh, me was by Honorable Mkonto on Clause 4, uh, which provisions of the Constitution do I uh, regard as contrary to? I think uh, Mr. LaRue just uh, referred to those, but just to emphasize again, uh, the most important provision, uh, undisputedly, in the Constitution is Section 1. As you know, it can only be amended with... Um, 
a uh, 75% majority of parliament, meaning it is far more entrenched than any other provision in the constitution. And section 1B of the constitution says that South Africa is one sovereign and democratic state founded, among other things, on non-racialism and non-sexism. Now, there is a uh, the relative uh, consensus amongst uh, legal academics, whether they are of the, uh, uh, call it the right wing or the left wing variety, who say that section one must always inform how the rest of the constitution is interpreted. Now, section 1B, because it says South Africa and by implication, uh, our society, our constitutional order, the very constitution itself is founded on non-racialism. That value must radiate across the rest of the constitution. It must radiate across all the uh, legislation, all policies, all regulations. It is indeed a founding principle of the government of South Africa, uh, on paper at least. Uh, so that is my, my first point. Uh, Section 1B uh, is the uh, first and most important provision of the Constitution, which I would regard Clause 4, but this bill in general on a conceptual level, to be incompatible with. Um, Honorable Mkonto has specifically made uh, reference to unfair discrimination, which I also mentioned uh, as a matter of differentiation can very easily graduate uh, and uh, become unconstitutional unfair discrimination. Uh, as you know, unfair discrimination is a term used in uh, section nine of the constitution uh, where it is uh, prohibited, unfair discrimination is prohibited. And that has been read to imply that there is a form of fair discrimination and uh, a fair discrimination in South Africa has been taken to mean uh, uh, legislation like the Employment Equity Act, uh, like the Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment Act that redresses the past on racial lines. Now, I, uh, uh, with respect, I must uh, push back against uh, this view uh, that is incorrect. If Section 1B says that South Africa is founded upon non-racialism, then I submit, and you're free to disagree with me, that uh, the prohibition on unfair discrimination cannot be read to mean that fair discrimination may under any circumstances be on the basis of race. So uh, just to answer that question, the two provisions specifically uh, that I have in mind are section one and section nine of the constitution, which prohibit uh, racial discrimination in my view quite explicitly. And then just to emphasize the point that Mr. LaRue has made, and that is that the constitution makes reference to uh, uh, the public sector, and there are two other places, uh, the judiciary and the uh, commissions, uh, this uh, section nine commissions, uh, must be broadly reflective of demographics uh, or of the people of South Africa. Different wording is used. In those, only those three circumstances can one, in my view, make the argument that government may impose racial quotas. Uh, there is no mention in the constitution anywhere that the private sector must be socially engineered into complying with national uh, demographics uh, or provincial demographics or anything like that. There is no place in the constitution that says that. And if in fact the constitutional drafters were willing to put provisions in that said the public sector, the judiciary and the chapter nine commissions must be broadly the, uh, reflective of, of these demographics, then there is no reason why if they sought the constitution to also apply in this way to the private sector, why they wouldn't have simply inserted a provision saying that 
the government may socially engineer racial quotas on the private sector. The decision to exclude such a provision must be regarded as substantive and, in my view, uh, uh, conclusive that the Constitution does not allow government to impose racial quotas in any way, shape or form on the private sector, but it may impose them on itself in the public administration, judiciary and the commissions. Um, so that is uh, to the questions from Honorable Mukonto. Um, Honorable Denner asked uh, about uh, my notes on the lack of a detailed uh, set of criteria and an example for detailed criteria. Um, so the, uh, as I've emphasized, we, we shouldn't lose sight of the substantive issues that uh, uh, we've raised against this bill. The uh, fact that we regard the bill uh, conceptually as problematic means it is going to be difficult to have uh, uh, criteria that passes muster, but for instance, um, uh, there is a problem of, for instance, small organizations in towns of a relatively, uh, call it homogenous uh, 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 racial makeup, uh, at, uh, a town which is 99% composed of black individuals, a town which is 99% composed of uh, colored individuals. You run into the, into the issue there by, by giving the minister a uh, open discretion to really approach these uh, issues arbitrarily and, for instance, as my colleague mentioned, uh, uh, cause people to have to move because there's an over-concentration. So detailed criteria in this instance would, in fact, prescribe to the minister exactly how he would have to deal with situations of this nature if he comes across an area that is racially homogenous or even if uh, 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 there are no disabled individuals because the Employment Equity Act uh, does not only apply to race, but uh, what happens to those situations? Uh, there needs to be criteria for that. Um, but but more, uh, more than that, um, uh, it's Parliament's job to make law. This is what the Constitution provides, and this is what centuries of democratic theory, uh, in fact, tells us. Parliament needs to make law. Now, if substantive criteria cannot be arrived at, it is clear that the discretion cannot be saved constitutionally. And that, as I've mentioned in my presentation, Parliament itself needs to di uh, directly in the legislation identify the sectors uh, and determine the targets itself in the legislation. It needs to have a schedule in the legislation saying for this sector, this is the target because Parliament or our elected representatives, we as the people, the citizens of South Africa have given Parliament the authority to govern. Uh, not, we have not given that authority to officials. Officials are there to implement Parliament's will, uh, but we have not given officials, including the minister, uh, plenary legislative power. So uh, uh, if, if it is too difficult to arrive at discretion, then Parliament needs to uh, uh, set these uh, 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 identify these sectors and set the criteria, uh, not the criteria, the, the targets uh, themselves. Um, and then, uh, Honorable Denner, I really appreciate that you are uh, going to look into whether a uh, impact assessment was done. That, that is very important. Um, and then, Chair, I believe you addressed the uh, last question to me. Um, I shouldn't be misinterpreted. I did not say a parliament uh, is shooting itself. Uh, I, I said parliament is shooting around in the dark. Um, uh, and, and I did not say it is, but it, it would be if, in fact, 
this committee and then the National Assembly uh, decided to adopt this bill. Now, I hope that at this stage, this committee has not arrived at a decision yet. Uh, so in that respect, uh, I do not think that the members are sh shooting in the dark at all, uh, because I, I hope and I trust that my remarks that an impact assessment should be conducted to provide you, honorable members, with the requisite clarity and information about the uh, likely and uh, perhaps unlikely consequences of this bill, uh, that you will uh, insist on, on something like that. I trust that uh, I have confidence in that. Um, and then you are, in fact, um, setting up uh, a barrier to, to you not uh, being in that position where you do not know that you do not have the relevant information. Um, uh, but uh, in, uh, to specifically refer to uh, sections of the Constitution, Section uh, 423, for instance, uh, provides that uh, uh, Parliament is responsible for scrutinizing and overseeing executive action. Uh, this is trite, uh, honorable members, and uh, Section 422.2b, uh, I believe, provides that uh, oversight and exercise of national executive authority and any organ of state is the role of the National Assembly specifically. Um, so my, my remarks, uh, Honorable Chair, were based on these constitutional provisions. Uh, I do not know the rules of the National Assembly. I, I freely admit that. Um, but whatever the rules are, they must uh, comport with what the Constitution provides. And uh, in my view, my understanding as, as, uh, as uh, someone with various law degrees is that uh, uh, these, these uh, roles that Parliament and specifically the National Assembly have been assigned to provide oversight of the department must, as a, as a matter of course, include uh, uh, insisting on all the relevant information that concerns a given intervention, such as this bill, and uh, a, a relevant piece of information uh, I, I do not think it can be disputed, would be an impact assessment. Uh, my colleague referred to section 1941 earlier. Uh, that provision also provides that the public administration must provide uh, timely and uh, accessible information to the public. Um, and this, for to, uh, in my view at least, uh, is, is a clear reference to something like an impact assessment. Uh, the public must be informed, uh, parliament must be informed about the consequences, both foreseen and unforeseen, both intended and unintended, that will emanate if Parliament adopts the bill. So uh, please do not misconstrue me. I, I certainly did not mean to say, uh, nor do I think I did say, that uh, uh, this committee is shooting around in the dark, uh, simply that that will be the case if Parliament proceeds without an impact assessment, without from being familiar with the consequences of this legislation. And it will not only be Parliament, but it will also be the public, it would be us. We will be also be shooting around in the dark, uh, uh, not knowing what it is that the department is in fact uh, proposing. Uh, so I believe I've addressed all the questions addressed to me, uh, but if there are any others, I would be happy to take them as well. Thank you. No, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. I think you have uh, addressed uh, all the questions, and uh, thank you for acknowledging your your ignorance, admitting that your ignorance in terms of the rules that governs a parliament, and that is why we're here. That is why we have called you. And if you will go to chapter three. I'm sorry, chapter 13 of the legislative processes. I won't read all that, but 269 is, is 
talking to the initiation of the legislation by a national executive. A member has got the right to do that. A committee has got the right to do that. A cabinet minister has a right to do that. So what the department has done through its minister is not something untoward, but it's what is then outlined in the rules, uh, on the rules of parliament. Remember, just, just, just to, to empower you in moving forward, is that parliament is parliament because of rules. Without rules, wouldn't be called members of parliament. Without rules, would not be able to execute our responsibilities. And uh, any member has got the right to challenge the rules. The members of the member of parliament, even the, the, the member of, 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 of the society. But what is important, as um, 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 my understanding is that you people are legal fundis, please familiarize yourselves with the, 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 the processes that governs the work of committees, legislation, debates, and all, so that tomorrow you, you don't find yourself in the, in, the, in, the, in the situation. So that's why I'm referring you to chapter 13, which is page 156. You will read all that, and then you will then be able to, 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 to understand. Honorable members, I think they have been a, they are one and a half hours. They are very good in time. Uh, congratulations, really, you are business people. Mr. Leroux and Mr. And, and, and Mr. Van Staden. Uh, on the dot, you, 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 you are done. As, as I have said, if you want to, 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 be, to sit and, uh, and listen, it's fine because you have been listened by, by all, other, all other people that are then going to be presented, to, to make presentation and by the public at large, and, and, and thank you very much. Except that I must raise a concern, and we're always uh, concerned about that in this country, women representation. So I'm not quite sure whether in your business uh, 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 area, it's all boys choir, but in moving forward, <laughs> that is on a lighter note, but very serious. In moving forward, you would appreciate that women are seen in the center stage of, of, of saying difficult things, but also answering difficult questions as females, irrespective of race, class, but that a female. So, it's just, it's just a, a way of advice, and uh, I hope you will take that positively. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Sakaza, we will then, you will, you will, you will uh, inform us now the next, uh, the next uh, presenter. Uh, I just want to, 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 to propose to members that uh, we will break between one and two uh, for lunch, and uh, yeah, a person may take a glass of water as we do in committees, but as long as that is not displayed on the screen, because I'm told, as I've said, all our deliberations today are alive. Mr. Sakaza, which is the next uh, 
presenter. Thank you, Chair. Uh, the next presenter is already on uh, board. Uh, that's Anthea Jeffrey. She is from uh, South African Institute of Race Relations, Chair. Thank you. Thank you very much. Over to you. Good morning, Madam Chair. Good morning, honorable members and all other people attending this uh, virtual session. Thank you very much for the opportunity that's been provided to the IRR to talk to our concerns about the Employment Equity Amendment Bill. And I do have a, a presentation which I would like to share. So I hope very much that my technological promise is going to be up to the task and I will now try to share my screen. Um, could I ask if you're able to see? Oh, we can't. We don't. We don't see anything. You don't see Only anything. your face. Right. Um, I, I was explained that I would be made a co-host so that I had to have the possibility of sharing the screen as well. I'm not sure. If perhaps there's a glitch there. Can I? Can I? Possibility that's my own ignorance on this fear. Just, just to, to you, chair. I've made uh, Anthea a uh, co-host, so. She should be able to, if she can go to share screen, she should be able to, 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 to do your check. Um, thank you. Now I need to get back actually into the... Um, do you see it yet? No, no. Can, I, can I just check, Mr. Sakaza? Are you yeah. able to, to assist uh, Ms. Jeffrey? No, no, I, I'm not able because they didn't send me the presentation. I don't have it. If I had it, I would share it, but I made them co-host. If you look at, at uh, next to her name, it's written co-host, which means from her screen, she can be able to share. Not me because I don't have it, ma'am. Right. Um, I think let me then just speak to it, even if you can't see it. I just need to get to the point where um, I can see you again and you can see me. I don't see you now. I only see your computer. Uh, can you adjust it in such a way that we see your face? Um, yes. I'm Thank really you. sorry. I don't know what has gone half wrong here. Um, I think you are starting to share. Oh, gosh. Since here I'm screen sharing, and yet it doesn't seem to show anything. Is it possible for you to, to take us through? Oh, okay. There you are. That's better. Yeah. Yes. yes. Thank you so much. Sorry about the technical hitches on my side. Oh, or where else it might have been. Yeah, as I said, morning, Madam Chair, honourable members, thank you for the opportunity. I want to go through various points in relation to the Employment Equity Amendment Bill, starting um, with the fact that there has not been a publicised assessment 
Um, and, and as I've just heard from the previous presentation, and you have too, it has been government policy since 2015 that all new bills must be subjected to socioeconomic impact assessment. And the government's own guidelines for the socioeconomic impact assessment system or science require that the assessment start early and that it move through different phases. And in an initial assessment, consideration should be given to different options for dealing with the issue to be resolved. And the pros and cons of each option need to be unpacked. And there must be a particular focus on the likely costs of different interventions and their overall impact on the economy. In addition, a final CS report should accompany every bill that is released for public comment. And this should cover implementation costs for the state as well as compliance costs for business. And it should set out likely outcomes to be attained, which could include both positive and of course negative outcomes. Both need to be taken into account. In particular, said the guidelines, there must also be an assessment of whether a particular measure could lead to excessive costs identified in those guidelines, for example, as disinvestment by business or the immigration of people with scarce skills. And this is in a country where, where skills are at a premium. And the Employment Equity Amendment Bill is precisely such a measure which could have excessive costs. And yet a comprehensive and accurate science report was not released with it. We are certainly not aware of it. We've not been able to find such a thing. And of course, members of the public need to have access to it because the final CS report offers the very best way to help the public to know about the issues raised by a bill. This is what the Constitutional Court has recommended in the context of, of Parliament's obligation to facilitate public involvement in the legislative process under Section 59 of the Constitution. The Court, in dealing with various cases, has stressed this need for the public to have the opportunity to know about the issues. And a comprehensive science report is the very best way of making sure that that obligation is met. Instead, in the memorandum on the objects of the bill, we find a reference to only a one very small part of the bill's likely financial implications. For the memorandum notes that there are likely to be 1.2 million in coordination costs because there will be a greater need for coordination between different state entities, particularly when it comes to the issuing of compliance certificates to business. But that is only a very small fraction of the costs that this bill is likely to generate. It's not in any way a substitute for the kind of comprehensive sales report that would assist the public in knowing about the issues and also assist this committee in fully seeing the, all the ramifications of the bill. I'd also like to look at the, the massive economic damage that has unfortunately been done to our economy through the COVID-19 pandemic, the lockdown that's been implemented. But of course, the difficulties began even before then. South Africa was downgraded to junk status or, or uh, to non-investment grade status by three of the key international ratings agencies. And this happened even before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Um, now that we've had the lockdown for this prolonged period, 
We know that in 2020, GDP shrunk by an absolutely unprecedented 7%. We haven't had anything as bad as that for 100 years. There are approximately 1.4 million jobs that were lost. We know that tax revenues are down. Fortunately, not quite as badly as was anticipated, but still very badly done. That as a result, public debt is rising very rapidly, more quickly than the government had earlier anticipated. And there is still a risk that it's going to reach 100% of GDP. Some economists will say that if you take into account the government's guarantees to state-owned enterprises and their debts, then we've already exceeding 100% of GDP whereas the sort of global norm for emerging markets is 60% of GDP, and anything above that begins to raise concerns. And we do still face the risk of a sovereign debt default, and so government spending has to be reduced, as we saw in the February budget that was unveiled by Minister Tito and Bowenny. And unfortunately, this means that real increases, in other words, above inflation increases, on items such as education, healthcare, housing, policing, and even social grants are no longer possible. And this, of course, is very serious for the very millions of, of people who rely on the state for core goods and services. And the great majority of them, of course, are black South Africans who are heavily dependent on the government for these needs. We know that public sector wages are also having to be cut in real terms. There will be small increases in nominal terms, but they won't keep pace with inflation. And the jobs have been lost at South African Airways and the SABC, and they may yet prove unavoidable at ESCOM and other debt-ridden state-owned enterprises or SOEs. So the critical need is to be able to avoid austerity and these kinds of cuts to spending. And to achieve that, we need success in the government's reconstruction and recovery plan. And in particular, we need an upsurge in investment which will then lead to a faster rate of growth that will generate demand for goods and services, will lead to millions more jobs being created, which is essentially what we need to compensate for the jobs that have been lost and help absorb the millions of people who've been unemployed for a long period into the economy. And just how much could be their gains is evident from Bureau of Economic Research uh, study that was done in 2018. That bureau is part of the University of Stellenbosch. And it reported that the South African economy could have been one trillion rand larger and have generated 2.5 million more jobs if the country had managed to, to match the growth rates in other emerging markets over the past decade if we'd managed just what other emerging markets are doing, these are the sorts of benefits that we could gain. Unfortunately, however, the bill will make that more difficult and I'll come back to that in due course. But I'd like to start now by saying that the bill seems to be founded on, on various um, invalid false assumptions. It seems to assume, for example, that black people cannot get ahead without the Employment Equity Act and its interventions. And Gwediman Tashi, then Secretary General of the ANC, said in 2014, for example, that the ANC must explain the extent of black dependence on employment equity so that the black middle class, in his words, will strongly defend the EE policies that are supposedly responsible for its existence. 
that in fact, of course, black upward mobility has been happening for a very long time. And it goes back all the way, in fact, to the late 1960s, the 1970s, when it became apparent that the white population was far too small to meet the needs of the economy. And so business stepped up its appeals to government to stop standing in the way of black advancement, to make it possible for black people to move increasingly into management, supervisory, other senior jobs, and to embark on a host of other reforms to improve schooling, to give black trade unions the same uh, rights of organization and so on as others, uh, to, to take away the prohibitions on black property ownership and so on. And significant changes began in 1973, though it was, of course, a very slow process. But from 1973 onwards, that movement into higher echelons in the workplace began. And it began very much because business put pressure on the National Party government to allow that. The bill, at the same time, overlooks what are key barriers to upward mobility today. And these include low growth. Uh, South Africa has really lagged, as we've been talking about, the growth rates achieved in other emerging markets over a long period. We have high, quite unprecedented rates of joblessness. We have, unfortunately, poor standards of schooling, even though we spend about 6 to 7% of GDP on education. We have high crime rates, which are ticking up again. And we have a disturbing degree of, of family breakdown, in terms of which two-thirds of black children are growing up without the help and the support of both parents. And these barriers are often made worse, either by EE or by other policies. And it's very important if we are to see rapid black advancement up the economic ladder, that these barriers should be recognized, that they should be addressed and overcome. And in particular, that policy should not make them worse. The bill also assumes that demographic representativity is the norm. In other words, that people in the absence of discrimination will fan out into the workplace strictly in accordance with their share of, of the overall population. But that supposed norm is not in fact found in any country. As Thomas Sowell, an Mount economist in the United States, and many other commentators have pointed out, having minutely looked for demographic representativity around the world, it's simply not found in any heterogeneous society. It's not a norm, it's an impossible goal that cannot be achieved. And the reason fundamentally is that people are not blank slates. They differ greatly in their interests, their skills, their attributes, their experiences. They can't simply be slotted into any post as if they were sort of exchangeable, as if they were blank slates supposed to be molded in any way. The Employment Equity Act nevertheless seeks equitable representation at all levels of the workforce from the most senior to the most junior. And it bases what is equitable representation really on what is the black share, just to concentrate on, on black South Africans, um, of the economically active population or the EAP. And as I'm sure you're all aware, blacks make up 79% of the EAP. So that is the goal to be reached for demographic representativity under the EE Act at all levels of employment from the top down. But the EAP includes all people between the ages of 15 and 64 who either work or would like to work, but don't in fact have jobs. 
And the black population in South Africa is a very youthful one. About half of black people are under the age of 25 years. And so automatically they have too little experience for management and other senior posts. This comes with time and people under the age of 25 haven't had that time. In addition, more than 9 million black people within the EAP are unemployed, which means that many of them may have only little work experience and perhaps often not the right work experience for the senior posts. So we would argue that managers need to be at least 35 years old so that they've had time to, to develop that life experience, work experience, which is needed. And that senior managers need to have even more experience in the workplace and ideally should therefore be older before they become appointed. In 2019, Africans aged 35 to 64 made up only 43% of the EAP, making this a more realistic target than 79%. But even 43% may in fact be unrealistic because of this factor. Many management, professional and senior posts require degrees or recognize that degrees are advisable to get the right sort of basket of skills for the people to fill those posts. But only 5% of blacks, this is very much given our history, who are over the age of 20 have these degrees. And many of them are recent graduates with all the very many years of on-the-job experience that are needed to adequately fulfill a very senior post. If we look at implementation of, of employment equity in the public sector, there has been very rapid progress there. And just to take one statistic from the latest report of the Commission for Employment Equity, in 2020, blacks made up 77% of top managers in the public service which means that the goal of 79% of the EAP has almost been met. And yet this is at odds with the age and education profile that we have been talking about. And this shift has been achieved, it seems, by applying quite rigid quotas rather than the flexible targets which the EE Act mandates, by appointing people for their potential to acquire the ability to do the job which is authorized under the Act, of course, by leaving posts vacant. And it seems also by often deploying royal cartridges to positions, um, irrespective really of, of what experience or um, skills they have developed for particular posts. According to Professor William Gamede of Witts University, and I quote from him, senior managers and board he was talking here of SOEs, but the same would apply to the public sector, are often appointed for patronage, political and corrupt reasons, not competence. And he went on to say that incompetent managers often appoint family, friends and allies to middle and lower management, cascading the zone of incompetence downward. There's also been a high turnover among senior staff in the public service and a very rapid change over the last 20 years or so, which has further undermined efficiency and eroded institutional memory, which is a very important thing in itself. And an inefficient public service is now a key barrier, as, as the World Economic Forum has put it. It's one of the key barriers to doing business in the country. So that deters investment. It means we have lower growth and fewer jobs. 
and that situation further hurts the black majority. Many municipalities, as we know, are dysfunctional. They fail at their core functions, such as managing wastewater plants. A very scary statistic is that 4 billion litres of untreated sewage are being discharged into our rivers and dams every day, mostly because wastewater plants are no longer functioning efficiently. Uh, and that's mostly because people with the necessary engineering and other skills to run them uh, are no longer in the public service. And this has happened in the Baal River as well to an extraordinary extent. And the Human Rights Commission recently conducted an investigation into the situation on the Baal. And it blamed massive sewage spills in that area on the failure to appoint skills which were available, which weren't nevertheless used. And the reason might be because that the skills didn't fit with the EE targets. There are many serious consequences for the majority of black people um, because we, when the public service fails to live up to its potential and to do a proper job, then you get these kinds of outcomes, that 78% of grade four children cannot read for meaning in any language, that 61% of grade fives can't do simple arithmetic, the addition and subtraction of whole numbers, that 85% of our public clinics are unable to comply according to the Office of Health Standards Compliance with basic norms on hygiene, medicines availability and the like. And each time it's the black majority that is so heavily dependent on the government for meeting its core needs that suffers the most. If we look now at implementation of the BEE Act in the private sector, even before the Act came into effect in 1999, um, studies showed that 90% of 150 big companies already had affirmative action programs in place on a voluntary basis, that they were paying 10% to 20% premiums for senior black staff to attract them into their employ and to retain their services because many others were trying to poach them. And this simply confirmed the extent of the demand for skilled black people. It didn't point in any way to a racist refusal to employ or promote skilled black people. The situation that we have at the moment is that blacks make up 12% of top managers in the private sector. Uh, and this, of course, is far below the level in the public service, but it is consistent with the age and education profile of the black population, as earlier discussed. The private sector was promised flexibility on targets when the bill was being mooted and being adopted by Parliament, but that flexibility has already been eroded. Firstly, by the Black Economic Empowerment Codes of Good Practice, uh, which many businesses do find themselves under pressure to comply with, and which effectively set targets ranging from 60% Black representation for senior managers to 88% Black representation for junior managers. Then there were a number of important changes in 2013, under which many of the defences on which business had previously been able to rely such as the size of, of the pool of suitably skilled people, or economic circumstances in the sector or in the country were removed from the Act, and the onus was put on business to show that they were making, you know, that it was not in any way their fault, that there was reasonable reasons why they were failing to meet the goal of demographic representativity. And uh, in essence, this exposed business far more to the threat of very big fines, big enough to bankrupt many companies 
which is what the government's own impact assessment back in 2010 warned. It said that if you push fines up very high and at the highest they can be 10% of annual turnover, then there's a very real risk that companies will fail and that employees will then lose their jobs and the overall situation will be worse. In addition, we know that business simply cannot afford a loss of competitiveness. We can see how the, the public service has lost much of its capacity. Business can't afford the same because it must retain competitiveness, both in relation to other firms within the country, but critically in relation to competitors across the world, because South Africa must be able to sell its products into global markets elsewhere if we're ready to prosper and have expanding opportunities for all our people. Um, and if we to maintain competitiveness, business has to maintain efficiency. And critically, it has no tax revenues on which to fall back if it fails to achieve those two key things. So if we look very briefly at the core provisions of the bill, under clause four, we have a new section 15A of the Act, which will allow the minister to set numerical targets for designated employers in any national economic sector, with differing targets possible for different levels of employment in different subsectors and in different regions of the country. And the discretion which is given to the minister here is an entirely untrammeled one. There are no clear guiding parameters, but the Constitutional Court has set its case against this kind of discretion, and it makes for vagueness in laws and it undermines the supremacy of the rule of law, which is guaranteed by Section 1 of the Constitution. Under the amended Section 53, moreover, business will not be able to obtain a state contract unless it has a certificate of compliance, showing that it has complied with the minister's targets, plus various other obligations, for example, the national minimum wage. But this unfortunately is likely also to add to the state's procurement costs. Many businesses may suffer because they can't get state business. They may have to retrench, which could add to unemployment and poverty. But in terms of the state procurement costs, we will also be reducing the pool of entities which can compete for government contracts. And the consequence, unfortunately, could be that the companies which remain um, have this need to compete on price, that they're more able to inflate prices. And the problem of inflated prices and also a, a problem of fraud and corruption has become massive in BEE preferential procurement. And we had, for example, the acting chief procurement officer in the National Treasury appearing before the Zondo Commission, one of the very first witnesses to be called in 2018, to say that the relevant rules were not followed in 50% of state contracts, but often something like an emergency was claimed in order to abandon the normal rules. And then in his words, you would find that a contract price would go from 4 million to 200 million. And this had enormous impact on the state's procurement costs. And the state's budget at that point for procurement was about 800 billion. And unfortunately, the black majority is dependent, as we said, on government goods and services. If there are inflated prices at this level, what it means is the money doesn't go as far as it should. And many black people who need the benefit of goods and services from the state find themselves being shortchanged and having to do with far less than they should receive. Then I'd also believe that the bill, like the Employment Equity Act, which it amends, 
is unconstitutional. And first of all, because racial classification and racial targets contradict the founding value of non-racialism in section 1B of the constitution. And that commitment to non-racialism is not a future aspiration to be met at some point in the future when demographic representativity has supposedly been attained, because that goal, as we've discussed, can actually never be fulfilled. Dem not the, the obligation to embrace non-racialism is a current obligation right now. It's not simply a future aspiration, and it certainly shouldn't be bedeviled by policies which, which set goals which cannot be fulfilled and therefore mean that non-racialism in practice is always going to be shifting further and further away. In addition, we have under section 194 of the constitution, a requirement that the public service should be broadly representative of the population. But that's not the same as the strict demographic representativity envisaged in the Employment Equity Act and in the way that the act is being interpreted. And in addition, that very same section of the constitution also makes clear that appointments still have to be based on ability and fairness must not compromise efficiency and so on. And the requirement does not apply to the private sector, which means it was not intended to apply to the private sector. There's a Latin maxim here, which I apologize for quoting, but it sums it up well. It says, expressio unius, the expression of the one thing, est or is exclusio alterius, the exclusion of the other. So if you express it, explicitly mention the one thing, but you don't mention the other thing, it shows that you intended to leave out the other thing. If you expressly mentioned the public service, but you did not mention the private sector, that meant you intended to leave the private sector out of this obligation for broad representativity. And the racial targets, which are really have been developed under the EE Act, also fail the tests laid down by the Constitutional Court in the Van Heerden case back in 2004. There, the Constitutional talk, Court said that authorised remedial measures, which would include EE racial targets of the kind to be decided by the Minister under the Bill, must pass three tests of validity. First, do they target the disadvantaged? And the answer is no, because it's clear that EE racial targets help only about 15% of black people. In other words, they help the most skilled and all the best politically connected, what India calls the creamy layer. And this is the experience which is echoed right around the world, where you have affirmative action measures of a similar kind. It's always the most credentialed who are able to take advantage of these targets and the great majority of people are unable to do so. They simply are left behind in terms of those targets. Second, do they advance the black majority? And again, the answer is no, because the racial targets envisaged in this bill will extend the damage that has already been done in the public service to the private sector as well. And that will mean less efficiency, less delivery, fewer jobs, and more poverty. Third, the question laid on by the Constitutional Court, do racial EE racial targets promote the achievement of equality? And again, the answer is no, 
and you can see it very clearly from the Gini coefficient of income inequality, which has risen from 0.59 in 1994 to 0.63 in 2020. And this is very much because employment equity helps the relatively small black elite, while 9.1 million black people are now jobless. So you have an ever widening divide between a relatively small group at the top that is able to take advantage of the racial targets and a very large group at the bottom, which has very little chance of ever being appointed to management and other senior posts, that is actually hurt by the targets because they deter investment, they restrict growth, they add to unemployment, and they are undoubtedly part of the reason why 9.1 million black people are now jobless and destitute. And of course, the black population makes up 80% of the entire population. So inequality there means inequality widens in the entire society. Another measure too, the bottom 40% of blacks had roughly the same share of national income in 2015, 3.7%, as they had had in 2006, when it was 3.4%. And this was despite stricter employment equity racial targets in that period, showing, again, that the racial targets are simply not helping the people at the bottom, who are not going to be eligible for the senior jobs in any event, and find their job opportunities constricted every time the economy contracts, every time companies fail, every time companies don't expand and take on more people. So we would argue that the bill is unconstitutional and cannot be adopted in terms of Parliament's obligation to uphold the constitution at all times. But we would also argue that EE and the wider system of BEE should be replaced by a different form of empowerment, that the black majority shouldn't simply be left in the status quo, but that a far more effective measures should be found to help bring about rapid upward mobility. And EED, economic empowerment for the disadvantaged, is an IRR proposal, which we've been working on for some years, but undoubtedly still needs refinement, which, which has three key elements. The first one is to recognize and reward the business contribution. We know that business already makes large and important contributions to fixed investment. This is gross fixed capital investment. Some of it comes from the from, uh, state departments, some of it comes from the SOEs, but the great bulk of it, two thirds of it, comes from the private sector. The business also contributes enormously to employment, providing 70% or so of jobs but it makes an enormous contribution to tax revenues, both corporate revenue and the PAYE that is, is gathered from employees, that it really is the fundamental contributor to GDP, that its export earnings are enormously important in um, helping to finance our imports, boost the value of the brand. And we also know that it's very important that business contributes to research and development South Africa's spending has fallen down there below, below global norms. If we could push it up, it would be enormously beneficial. So business should be incentivized by a, a new sort of scorecard, and they should get EED points, we argue. If they invest more, employ more, pay more uh, in terms of wages, taxes, R&D contributions, and the like. So they're incentivized to expand their contribution to the society and thereby to offer many more opportunities to all South Africans. 
Secondly, we believe that low-income households should be empowered by tax-funded vouchers for schooling, healthcare, and housing. And these vouchers would empower them directly. Once they are armed with these vouchers, they would have the same kind of choice that the middle class enjoys as to what school they would like to send their children to, as to whether they would like to take out low-cost health insurance, for example, to give them increased access to the private sector, whether they'd like to obtain low-cost medical aid membership, particularly if the government were to make more of that accessible. Um, in terms of housing, instead of having to wait for the government to provide and the housing list is now longer than it was in 1994, they would be able to start building, buying, upgrading their own homes without having to wait on the public service to do it. And providers, whether public or private, would have to compete for the custom of these households, which would push up quality and hold down costs. That's the great advantage of competition and the benefits of competition can be made available to poor households as well. And some 700 billion in tax revenues would then be far better spent than it is now. We talked earlier about how poor outcomes often are in education, healthcare, and housing. And in, instead of uh, the money being badly spent by bureaucrats, it would be well spent by households with a keen personal interest in making sure that they and their families get the most benefit from their tax-funded vouchers. What do ordinary South Africans think about this? In November and December 2020, just at the end of last year, 80% of black respondents in an IRR opinion poll supported the idea of schooling vouchers. 74% supported healthcare vouchers. 75% supported housing vouchers. And 74% of black respondents said that these vouchers would be more effective in helping them to get ahead than EE and the broader BEE scheme. The vouchers reach right down to the grassroots and they are a crucial part of the EED proposal. And business would be incentivized to help here too. They could earn EED points for topping up vouchers for the poorest, perhaps in rural areas in particular where, and they could help improve the quality of teaching help develop innovations in healthcare and housing, all of which would increase the quality that is available to people. And third, we believe that EED, like the social grant system, should use a means test to assess disadvantage. Instead of using race as a proxy for disadvantage, it would cut straight to the heart of the matter. But some 99% of beneficiaries would be black in any event. Racial classification and racial targets would then fall away, which would be in keeping with the Constitution's commitment to non-racialism. And we would see an upsurge in rapid growth, good schooling, millions more jobs would be created. There would be massive opportunities for all South Africans and the rising tide of this magnitude would lift all this. The choice to be made is an important one. The IRR, just as a bit of history, was formed in 1929, so it's almost 100 years ago, to oppose racial discrimination, promote equality before the law, foster racial goodwill, and help liberate the poor. And we know from all the research that we did over decades of apartheid that racial discrimination made upward mobility far more difficult for black people. 
because the usual foundations for this, good schooling, adequate housing, skilled employment, property ownership, and business opportunities were barred to them in whole or part by government policy. Hence, when the constitution was being framed, the broad agreement that it must prohibit racial discrimination, uphold equality before the law, but also authorize remedial action of an appropriate kind. And the key question is how that remedial action is to be done. And the Employment Equity Act's approach with its unrealistic and rigid racial targets has undermined public sector capacity, damaged delivery to the black majority, deterred investment, restricted growth, added to unemployment, reduced tax revenues, boosted public debt, led to spending cuts and other austerity measures, is part of what is now a pretty bleak picture. The bill, unfortunately, will increase the harm that has already been done. The bill will stall economic recovery, prompt a further flight of scarce skills and capital, leave more people unemployed, add to poverty, and increase inequality between the small black relative elite that may benefit, may not benefit at all, of course, if the private sector increasingly departs from the country or businesses close their doors. And rift will increase between the great, the, the small group at the top and the great majority of black people who will be further harmed. On the, or on the contrary, the country can shift to EED and so promote growth, growth and jobs, empower the poor with tax-funded vouchers for choice and quality, and use a means test in place of racial classification, and so embrace non-racialism right now. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeffrey. Honorable members, there is the presentation, questions of clarity. I see that two hands, any other hand, any other hand, any other hand. Uh, any other hand? Any other hand? I will add my hand in the group. Uh, thank you very much. I don't know whether we've lost Honorable Mkonto. No, I'm here. I'm here, Chair. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I also see Honorable Kado's hand is up. Uh, yes. Honorable Kado? Thank you. Honorable Kado, Honorable Dana, Honorable Mkondo, in that order. And then I will wait if there is any other hand, then I will come last. Questions of clarity. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair. Thank you to Dr. Jeffrey for the presentation. Um, I wonder if Dr. Jeffrey could clarify for us the effect of the new Section 15A 
that gives the minister the power to determine sectoral numerical targets, whether she could walk us through what the effect of that new section would be in, in practice. And I'm particularly interested to know, what is the difference in your view between a numerical target set by the minister and a quota? You mentioned the Concord's ruling in the Van Heerden case. We know that the courts have given direction on the recourse to rigid racial quotas. But I want to know, and I want you to clarify for us as a committee, will the implementation of Section 15A as it stands, in effect, make numerical targets set by the minister quotas? Will numerical targets, in effect, become quotas? Thank you. Honourable Dana. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to Dr. Jeffrey for the presentation. I think it's quite clear and self-explanatory. I'd just like to ask that Dr. Jeffrey please um, explain to the committee and elaborate on why a means test would be better implemented than racial quotas, if I can state it like that. And then also, may I request that this presentation that she's just delivered to the committee be circulated and sent to us via email. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Mkonto. Uh, thanks, Chair. Uh, Given an opportunity, Chair, I would ask a lot of uh, clarity-seeking questions. Unfortunately, time is on our side. Um, but I'll um, ask maybe two or three questions. The first one, Chair, is um, the 1.2 million uh, coordination costs. Um, can uh, Dr. Jeffrey at least give small details of that? as to exactly what is she talking about. And then uh, the, 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 the racial discrimination um, referred to in the constitution, um, what other forms of discrimination according to her, is this a bill trying to, to redress? Is it only uh, about race, according to her understanding, or are there any other forms of uh, discrimination? And uh, the last one, Chair, will be the, the way forward. Um, is, am I understanding her correctly to say uh, 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 this bill, can it be clarified to me that this bill is only about high positions? It has nothing to do with low, low uh, 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 level uh, uh, positions. And that in the way forward, um, how exactly is this going to be done? Uh, without promoting a state dependency uh, 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 syndrome. Thanks, Chair. 
very much, Honorable uh, Mkonto. Dr. Jeffrey, let me appreciate uh, the presentation that you have made in front of us. I, my, myself also, I am, I am, I'm, the, the issue of time is, is constraining us because your presentation is thought provoking. Your presentation has got, um, it also brought us into emotional feelings. And I want to thank you for raising those things as much of some of them, you, you, they, they are very generic and it's those that I will touch one or two in particular around the scales. I would, I would just want to check with who do you not, would it not have been better in your presentation as you have made an introduction to outline to the public as, and the committee in particular, that as much as we are aware, majority of us, of the impact of the system of education, that majority of us are a product of, would it not, wouldn't be better for you to have just outlined that why you will have majority of black people who are then not skilled or poorly skilled. Two, it, am I correct to, to, to think that your presentation, as much as you are saying, is, uh, the, the, these amendments are unconstitutional in fact, it's what it, it, the, the presentation is saying, leave private sector to, to white people who have got skills on how to run business, focus on public service, public sector, and which is at, 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 at some point, it's, it, it, that's what I want to, because that's what I am, um, I, that's why I want clarity is that, is it not in all what you have said, in essence, you, it's saying the bill, parliament, uh, the, 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 the minister, please leave private sector to to, to white people because the constitution is saying APCD and in the public in the public sector, majority it has been done well and there it's led by black people. I think the last question is the is the question that I have I have been it has been it has been uh, asked by Honorable Mkondo. But again I would have thought that as race relation you will really, in your presentation, will it not have been better also to take us through this thing of young people who are jobless? Because in that, you have got certain categories. Will it not have been better to really put those categories 
clearly because there are those that are, are graduates, uh, there are those that are from technicons, there are those that are from TVET colleges. And I w- don't you think that it would have been much better and make us tomorrow to, to because here we are, we are the people, to, we, we, we want to, 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 to deal and, and have an understanding of your presentation so that when we deliberate at our own time, we are deliberating being informed with the figures in front of us. So that's, that, that's why I, 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 I'm asking the question that it would it not have been better if you could have a, a thing lay bare and, and put the, 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 the figures so that the, the committee is empowered in its deliberation. I don't, I don't see any hand. Uh, the, I was the last hand. I will, I will, I will then uh, 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 request you, Doc, to, to respond. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, if I could begin with the, the questions raised by Honourable Cardo. He asked me to elaborate on the effect of Section 15A if it were to be implemented um, as it is now in the bill and specifically asked if, if it would turn targets into quotas. Um, I think that's always a difficult thing to know. The distinction between the two in practice is hard to draw. And I, I think it's also not the most important concern. What the most important concern is the level of, of rigidity that will nevertheless be introduced whether one characterizes what the, the minister requires of business as the fulfillment of a target or a quota. And it will be primarily directed to business simply because the, the public service and SOEs, municipalities, provincial departments have generally moved very far towards the EEP goal of 79%, whereas the figures that I gave you of the private sector show that it hasn't done so. But what the private sector has done, as I also pointed out, is more in keeping with the, the age and the skills profile of the population. And what we need to make sure is that in trying to provide redress, we don't cause harm to the wider society. And I fear that we have caused harm through the insistence on, on unrealistic racial targets, the pursuit of demographic representativity, which cannot be attained, has not been attained in any country. And as we try and, and pursue this impossible goal, we've actually done damage to the capacity of the public sector and that in turn has caused damage to the great majority of black South Africans who do need efficient schooling, healthcare, housing, and so on to be available, particularly so that they and their children have a greater opportunity to climb the economic ladder. So having seen the kind of damage that has arisen in the public sector, and many people have acknowledged that it's the skills shortage that's been a key factor, uh, the appointment of people without the requisite experience, we shouldn't be doing the same thing, extending it to the private sector, because our economy is in a great deal of trouble. But even if it weren't in a great deal of trouble, even if we had some magical amount of growth, 5% or so, um, it would still be wrong in principle to be requiring um, business to do things which don't make 
sense from the point of view of either their, themselves or the wider society. What we really need is an organic process where we get the excellent schooling in place, which we can do with the help of the school vouchers, where we get a rapidly growing economy, where we get very many more jobs being provided. And the Bureau of Economic Research just shows us what could be attained um, if we were to match the growth rates in other emerging markets. And in this way, we would generate the, the rising tide that lifts all boats. Instead of seeing jobs as some kind of finite quantity, which can either go to black or to white, and then you argue about how that should be done, we should be seeing the enormous capacity that this country has to expand jobs for everybody. And then with better skills, with more experience, over time, of course, there will be a move ever closer and closer to um, black people being in the predominant role in all tiers of employment. But this would happen without the kind of intervention which at the moment has caused great damage in the, in the public service and has the potential to cause great damage in the private one. And perhaps just to be more specific, if business finds itself obliged to appoint on a basis that does not take adequate account of skills and experience, then business is going to be extremely reluctant to uh, expand at all. Uh, they can't obviously easily dismiss people who are already in their employment, particularly if it's on racial grounds, in order to make room for, for people of a different colour. But they will be very reluctant to expand. And um, there's also a chance that, given all the other problems in our country, that we will see an increasing outflow of skills and of capital. Already there are many fewer businesses than there were before, partly COVID lockdown, of course, but also because of this economic malaise that has plagued us for so many years. So we risk business closing doors, jobs being lost, let alone the expansion of the new jobs that we so badly need. Then secondly, um, I was asked why a means test rather than a racial test. Um, I, I suppose there are two main reasons. As I said, if, if you apply a means test, you're looking straight to the heart of the problem. You're identifying people who are disadvantaged in terms of their means. If you apply a racial test, then what you're also doing is making it much easier for the relative elite to benefit. And so the, um, this is, again, what has happened in every country around the world. That expression that I quoted from India, that it's the creamy layer that draws the benefit, is effectively what happens wherever affirmative action on a racial or ethnic basis is applied because the people with the best political connections or the best skills who are the most credentialed, as I said, are the ones who are most able to take advantage of the opportunities. And the truly disadvantaged, uh, the people who are unskilled, perhaps never even got a matric, are living in informal settlements, simply have no opportunity to get in to those senior jobs, which are, of course, the jobs that are in most demand. So if you apply a means test, you cut to the heart of the matter. You identify the people who are disadvantaged and most in need of a leg up. And secondly, because of our history, because of our commitment in the Constitution to non-racialism, it's a very good thing to move away from racial classification. The National Party finally repealed the Population Registration Act in 1991, and with it those categories, African coloured, Indian white. But in a way, we've breathed new life into those categories through laws like the Employment Equity Act which do require now supposedly voluntary self-classification, 
but still get people to consider themselves in terms of their racial category rather than as just South Africans, as I think uh, Monsieur Lakota said in 2004, it would be good if we could do. So it's embraced on racialism and it's cut to the heart of who needs help by applying a means test. And then uh, Anbum Konto raised the point about what are the coordination costs like? It cost 1.2 million. I'm afraid I have no particular insight on that. It's a figure that I picked up from the memorandum on the objects of the bill. The indication, as I recall, is that before compliance certificate could be issued, uh, the, the Department of, Labor, of Employment and Labor would have to coordinate with other entities to make sure, for example, that employers had complied with minimum um, national wages, that they had complied with the unfair discrimination provisions in, in the employment equity legislation. And so that increased coordination requirement would presumably require more staff, more interaction, and there would be certain compliance costs estimated at 1.2 million. Uh, in what other forms of discrimination is the bill intended to address? Well, obviously, employment equity legislation deals also with gender and with disability. But the key issue really is, you know, I focused on race because given our history, that is where the greatest need for has, has been, arguably. But apart from categories of disadvantage, what is really important is that people who are poor, who are destitute, um, should have the opportunity for upward mobility. And that seems to me that we can achieve through the kinds of alternative mechanism that I'm looking at. Economic empowerment for the disadvantaged would embrace people of, of uh, all races, people of all genders, uh, people who are, are differently abled as well as able, etc. Um, and what you would be trying to do is to find the people who are in need and then to empower them with vouchers so that they have choices in education and on healthcare and housing and can immediately begin to see a considerable improvement in the in really all the factors that are needed for upward mobility. And secondly, if you have a big focus on the role of business, which is the most important employer, which contributes uh, the tax revenues that government needs, that is the factor behind GDP growth. If we get business contributing and growing, then we will have more jobs as well and more opportunities for people to rise up the economic ladder. Um, then I'm not sure if I understood this. Uh, something about dependency. Um, would we be increasing dependency? And I'm not quite sure what the context there, perhaps from the bill itself, one would be decreasing dependency on the government. Um, I quoted the statement by Mr. Montache indicating that really black South Africans should be seeing themselves as dependent on the Employment Equity Act and other measures that, that the government introduces. But of course, you know, black South Africans have been uh, really responsible in large measure for their own uplift. And for decades, we had what my former colleague John Ken Berman called the silent revolution long before 1994, in terms of which black consumer power, black labor power became enormously important. And black people were, as I said, moving as they should have been into managerial supervisory positions and so on beginning to earn far more, beginning to have a much bigger role in the society. This wasn't something that just began with the, the ANC or the Employment Equity Bill. So 
it's not a good thing to encourage dependency on the government when people have the capacity to, to help themselves with appropriate help from the state. And the VATA system at Bespeak Sketching is very much a way of breaking the cycle of dependency. If you empower people with tax funded budgets, give them their own choices, turn them into customers that business and others want to cater for, this is enormously empowering and it, it will break the cycle of dependency. And in terms of Madam Chair, I'm sorry about the time now. Um, you asked whether it wouldn't have been better to talk about the skills shortage in the country, where it comes from, of course, has much to do with our history. And I, I think given the, the shortage of time, perhaps the best, if I may, is that the IRR does have a great deal of information on um, the education sphere. One of the critical things that we see, unfortunately, so many years after 1994, is that of the 1.1, 1.2 million children that start in grade one at the beginning of the cycle, by the time you get to grade 12, um, 40% or so of them have dropped out. Uh, we have probably an overall pass rate, if you take account of those who've dropped out, of only about 40%. And the real tragedy is that when it comes to uh, the proportion of people who are able to obtain a 50% pass rate in maths, it's a mere 4% of those 1.1, 1.2 million that started in school. And that's what we critically need to change so that all South Africans have much better opportunities to rise up the ladder. Um, then I think you, the question about why am I concerned just about the private sector? Do I want the private sector just to be able to keep its skilled whites? Well, I think to force the private sector um, in, into a situation echoing that of, of the public service where capacity has declined, efficiency has declined would be enormously unfortunate for the entire country and all its people. And as I said, the bill is likely to have its main focus on the private sector rather than the public one, because in the public service, we have uh, almost the attainment of the 79% goal, but at a considerable cost uh, to efficiency and to the country as a whole. And, um, we should have stopped, started also with perhaps with the extent of joblessness. Sorry, in a presentation, it's always difficult to know um, what, how much time you have for different things. But certainly the problem of joblessness is an enormous one, and it's been growing since 1994, uh, both in terms of the numbers involved and in terms of the employment rates. And it particularly afflicts, of course, um, unskilled black people, those who dropped out of school without obtaining a matric. And, and very often it it's also is a problem, even for, for people at the TVET colleges who don't seem to, to uh, receive a very good quality of training. In terms of university graduates, it's very clear that uh, unemployment within that group is much smaller. But we also unfortunately have a, have a considerable dropping off out of university where many of the people who are admitted find themselves unable to graduate, which is heartbreaking for them and their families and incredibly difficult for the country as a whole. But again, with your permission, I would be glad to send further information on education to the committee, together with my presentation. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, 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 Dr. Jeffrey. Kondo, uh, is it a new hand or is it the... The hand that no, it's, uh, it's the old one, Che. I'm oh. sorry for that. Please lower it. 
I think, uh, honorable members, if there are no other questions, uh, it is fine because we, we, we really asking these questions so that when we deliberate, we, we are able to, you, you don't then, as a presenter said, uh, uh, listening to the deliberations said, but I, I was never asked, should I have been given an opportunity? I would have, uh, I would have then uh, responded to that. It's quite an interesting time and process for the for the committee, not only for the committee, but I think for the for the country. We 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 want to to thank you for 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 coming. And, and, and deliberate. If, if, if the committee is agreeing that uh, they break down on the issues that I, I, I reflected, I asked if it would have not been much easier uh, to make work much easier if we do have that break, break, breakdown. If, if, I think the committee will be in agreement with that. Uh, if you can, if you can, uh, submit those uh, if possible by the end of, of, of tomorrow if you can or by the end of the week because remember that after all this we are then going to to, to deliberate we don't want to be deliberating without having an, an, an informed uh, situation in terms of the dependency if 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 I if I understood Honorable Mkondo, it's in terms of your way forward. If he was asking the issue of the vouchers, because myself, I've been struggling, trying to phrase a question which was more in line with, is the what you are proposing should be done in terms of vouchers to families for education for, is it not a a a, a a grant, a more sophisticated way of giving black poor people a grant again, which may then, in terms of the question asked by Honorable Mkondo, that I will not creating a dependency syndrome for the state again. So I think it was in that context, it was more of your of of of, of your way forward. I'm not quite sure whether you would want to with that clarity, you would want to respond to that to that question that I have now uh, clarified. I haven't. I didn't ask permission from her. I thought it's my responsibility as the chair. If you, if maybe you, you have just missed that, to to just check if uh, if uh, if I I hope I hope Kondo, I'm, I'm in line. With, with what you were, were trying to do. You want to respond to that? Honorable if Mkonto. I may, Madam Chair, and, and with, if Honorable Mkonto is happy. Yes, Honorable Mkonto, are you, are you fine with uh, that? Um, uh, uh, Chair, no, I'm not. Uh, you are correct, Chair. My question was based on the what he presented as a way forward. So... I, I, the, 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 the response did not uh, address that. The response 
was um, a bit general, but I was referring specifically to the points she, repre she presented as a way forward. Thanks, Chair. Yes, sir. May I respond then, Madam yes. Chair? Yes, Thank you. Um, the way we see the vouchers working, at the moment, um, there's something like 700 billion that goes in the budget to education um, and to healthcare and to community development and housing. Um, and we recognize that the government cannot expand its spending because we are already in a situation where we have very high public debt. Um, it would also be very good if we could get the growth. That means we don't have to embark on austerity, but we could reallocate some of the money that we are already allocating to these core needs. And so low-income households and families would receive these vouchers, which would be exchangeable solely for these core needs, education and housing and health care. And as I said, uh, there would be both public and private entities that would then obviously see those families as, as uh, consumers, as customers, who would want to compete for their custom by holding their prices down, keeping their quality up, making sure that they meet the needs of their customers. And that in itself would be an enormously empowering thing for low-income families. And it would be an, a reallocation of the budget, not an increased social grant. And the hope would very much be is that it would be it would diminish the need for it, would diminish over time. At the moment, we're in a situation where we have very high unemployment, where we have very low growth, and where we have a very poor quality, unfortunately, often of education, housing, healthcare, and so on. But now, these housing, healthcare, and, and um, education needs were being met far better. Jobs would be expanding. Growth would be taking off. And the number of people who would be poor on the means test would diminish year by year. So there would be a phasing out as these vouchers helped bring about an upliftment for the black majority. But you know, it would be effectively all people. One doesn't have to single out the black majority. But given our, our history, one is particularly concerned that people who were so badly treated in the past should have the chance to get ahead but they would have the chance to get ahead under the system. And that is why we urge that this should be the approach rather than the one which has taken us by the Employment Equity Act and of course, many other policy choices to a situation where there's a feeling really of hopelessness in the country. And so many people are unemployed. Uh, quality of education, healthcare and so on is low, is low. We can address all these things and we can in time phase out those vouchers as people have the money to need to meet their own needs. And just the last question from me. Voucher, which one will be much more better and empowering? A voucher vis-a-vis the role of private sector in skilling and reskilling of their people for them to go up the ladder of the economy. Voucher versus skilling, reskilling by private sector, because uh, I'm making, let me make an example why I'm making skill, I'm asking that question. A worker is working in VW. VW is producing cars. 
but are those workers, because at a particular time, those workers are going to either retire or will it not be better for the private sector for its responsibility to ensure that when they leave VW, they are able to build, to generate parts. When mine workers leave the mining sector, they have been empowered on how to clean or to cut. So a diamond or gold, I'm talking about a, 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 a voucher would, what will be your view, your voucher vis-a-vis skilling and reskilling? I think that um, that would really fall into the first part of our overall program. You know, when we say EED should also increase the role of business, that they should be contributing more, that, it, that they should get EED points for investment, for expansion, for offering more jobs. Uh, one of the things that we've often have talked about is training, that where business trains employees, again, there should be EED points available for that. But we must also, when it comes to the vouchers, we're looking at the much bigger picture. We're looking at the children growing up. We're looking at people with healthcare problems now. We're looking at people living in informal settlements, the great majority of whom do not have jobs and don't have the opportunity for that on-the-job training. So the vouchers would be geared at meeting the needs of those people and making it easier for them uh, to have the skills and the foundation needed for upward mobility. And at the same time, the emphasis on the first prong, as it were, on business expanding would also mean that they would have more opportunities for employment and for being able to earn their own income. Um, and that, that critically is the overall picture that we would like to generate. And we do think that on the voucher element, business could also contribute in various ways, topping up vouchers for people in rural areas, as I said, or, or helping to, uh, through innovation, to develop new ways of, of uh, um, yeah, the, the various kinds of different houses that could be put up more cost-effectively, bigger houses for less money. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeffrey. It was quite interesting, thought-provoking, mind Boggering, emotive, uh, but it's fine. That's why we are called public representatives. Can we then? Uh, thank you very much, ma'am. Can thank we then? Much. Yeah, thank you. Can we then have the next uh, presenter, uh, Mr. Sakaza? Uh, yes, chair. Uh, the next presenter is supposed to be now um, Commission for Gender Equality (CGE). And uh, Mr. Dennis Matotoka is on board, so you can give over to him, Chair. Why are you saying it's supposed to be as if they are not here? Uh, no, Commission for Gender Equality? Yes, Chair. Can we... The floor is yours. Thank you, Chair, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Good morning, I think it's still morning, to members of the, the committee. Uh, Madam Chair, I'm not alone. I have my commissioners here with me. I just wanted to acknowledge them. Um, Chair, we are the Commission for Gender Equality. We are a Chapter 9 institution that is established in terms of Section 187 of the Constitution. We have a mandate to monitor and evaluate legislation, policies, and practices of the state 
statutory bodies and private businesses, as well as indigenous and customary laws. And we conduct uh, research and make recommendations to parliament. And we receive complaints, we investigate such complaints on gender discrimination, and we conduct public awareness and education on gender equality. Um, it is from this premise, uh, Madam Chair, that we make inputs to the Employment Equity uh, Amendment Bill. And we would again want to express our appreciation for this opportunity for us to, to present our views and our submissions to, to this bill. Um, Madam Chair, as a Chapter 9 institution, we had what we call transformation hearings. We conducted these transformation hearings dating back to 2013. Now, the transformation hearings were focusing specifically both in the public and the private sector um, to, to ensure that there is accountability in terms of implementing the Employment Equity Act. Now, the purpose, again, was to identify challenges that both the sectors uh, encounter in terms of implementing uh, the Employment Equity Act and also to assess the, the impact of the act in the workplace and also to assess the, the challenges or barriers that women and persons with disabilities um, experience in terms of moving from administrative positions to other um, occupational levels. Now, we have been having these hearings up and from 2013 um, until recently, and now we are currently doing follow-up hearings to assess the extent which the entities um, are able to implement some of the recommendations that the Commission has made during the, the, the hearings. Um, Madam Chair, in those hearings, we have accounting officers that are subpoenaed by the organization, by us as the CGE. Commissioners will pose specific questions that will really assess the extent in which entities are demonstrating commitment of implementing the Employment Equity Act to ensure that they are, there is rather equitable representation in various occupational levels in the, in the workplace. Now, what we were able to assess, Chair, was the, there were a number of issues that clearly demonstrated challenges of implementing the, the Employment Equity Act which in our view was more detrimental to, to women and persons with disability. Hence from our, our su submission was that the, the focus of the bill should not only be confined to race um, a focus, but should also look at the gender dynamics that are existing in, in the workplace. For example, Chair, we, we found as the Gender Commission that most workplaces, both private and public, they do not provide uh, breastfeeding facilities uh, to women in the workplace. They do not provide a flexi time uh, for, for, for uh, pregnant uh, employees in the workplace. And we know that these are some of the barriers that limit women's effective uh, participation in the workplace. And there's also the stereotype views that when you employ women at a managerial level or at a particular uh, decision-making level, they will not be able to perform because these are people who still have to look after their children and so forth. And our view as the commission was that to ensure that such barriers are addressed, the, the employers, both public and the private, needs to create an enabling environment where women would be able to perform their duties effectively without a worry that they have to go to a crash or they have to go uh, take maternity leave or even after maternity leave, they still ask for a number of months so that they can bond with their children. It's from that premise, um, Madam Chair, that we have recommended that there must be uh, breastfeeding facilities in the workplace. There should be flexi time if they are not able to provide um, uh, breastfeeding facilities. We've also assessed the, the, the policies 
uh, that aims to, to, to ensure there is a progression of women and persons with disabilities in various occupational levels. And we found those policies to be gender blind. And it brought into question the, the commitment by both sectors to ensure that women, persons with disabilities are catered for or they are adequately and equitably represented in the various occupational levels. So their policies are gender blind. And our view is that the, the reason why their, their policies are gender blind is because we don't have a gui guiding yardstick rather or an empowering provision that pushes the, the, the sectors to prioritize the appointment, the recruitment of persons with disabilities and women in various occupational levels. And we found that to be a gap that the, the sectors are unable to implement uh, because of a lack of a, a, a legislation rather, or provision in the Employment GPT Act that makes it mandatory for, for, for the sectors to, to implement that. And Chair, one, one of the things that we, we must appreciate about the Act is that it, it says, it, it essentially says to the employers, they must come up with innovative measures to ensure that there is equitable uh, representation of persons of various persons from previously disadvantaged groups. It, it, it provides this um, discretion uh, to, for, for employers to set their own targets. And we have to bring into the question whether since 1998 uh, up, up until now was the, the discretion that is, all, that is provided to employers able to ensure that the previously disadvantaged groups benefit from this empowering provision. And as the Gender Commission, we were able to find that there were areas of improvement, but to have or to ensure that there is equitable representation, we found that it is still a problem. And that finding, Madam Chair, is also supported by the various reports from the Employment Equity Commission. The reports from the Employment Equity Commission year in, year out, clearly outline one important factor that uh, is, it should be of a concern and aim to be addressed by this bill. And that factor is, the, especially in the private sector, there is a, there is a finding or, or rather a, a, an expression by the Employment Equity Commission that um, the white groups in particular, they enjoy preferential treatment um, in terms of skill and promotional um, opportunities. And with that, it, it definitely demonstrates some of the challenges why, for example, black women will not be able to, to acquire certain positions because of the lack of skills that uh, uh, maybe they may be lacking uh, in, in, in whatever uh, portfolio or unit that they are occupying. So the preferential treatment that other races uh, uh, enjoy in the workplace also talks a lot about the, the prospects or the lack of prospects that previously disadvantaged groups encounter in the workplace. So it is that flexibility, Madam Chair, that we found that it is still a problem in the private sector and also in the, in the public sector. We found as the commission that employment equity managers are appointed in the private sector. Some they do, some they don't. But in instances where employment equity managers are, are appointed and they recognize they the lack of representations or the inadequate representation of previously disadvantaged groups. They do not have powers. They cannot even persuade managers or, or senior managers or owners of the company to take robust measures to ensure that there is equitable representation in, in various occupational levels because there is, it's, it's not an agency in, in, in our assessment when we, we engage the, the, the private sector and the public sector. So those are the gaps that we have found. And one important aspect also is that 
Madam Chair, when, when the, the complainants, or rather the complaints that we normally receive, when somebody says, I've been discriminated against on the basis of gender when it comes to a particular occupational level, when I was applied and I believe that I've been excluded on the basis that I'm a female, and we must appreciate that in South Africa, litigation is very expensive. So it is not every female employee or a person with disability in the workplace will be able to challenge some of the decisions that are taken by the employers, both in the public or, in, or private sector, um, will not be able to afford litigation each time when they are excluded um, in terms of promotions or in terms of uh, benefits, training, it's not everyone. So litigation becomes a problem. And that is why we have found as the commission that uh, previously could disadvantage groups and also said by the Employment Committee Commission, they continue to be over-concentrated at uh, administrative levels, but their upward mobility continues to be a challenge. Um, with your permission, Chair, I may also share the, 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 the important case that highlighted the systemic discrimination and um, inequalities that we, we, we that the Commission is referring to. In 2018, Chair, we had a very interesting case where the, a complainant, Ms. Cowan, I think it was also in the media, but the, the complainant was a suitably qualified candidate. Um, and when I say suitably qualified, I mean in terms, both in terms of, of skills and in terms of academic qualifications. Applied to a private sector entity, um, uh, and she was promised to, 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 to be appointed as a, a CFO, uh, which we know that is a, is a very critical position and a decision-making level. Um, she was appointed at a group as a group financial manager, and she was asked to give herself time to be subjected to processes, training, exposure within the company up until they feel that uh, she's now ready to take over um, the position of a CFO. And the CFO position, when it was vacant, it was allocated to somebody who did not even have the requirements uh, to take over the position. To cut the, the, the story, or rather the case short, was that the, ultimately the entity said to, to, the, to the female candidate that you are a female and you are an employment equity candidate. And if you want to leave, you may you can leave. And this emanates because she was now demonstrating her frustrations, both in terms of her relationship in the workplace, but also understanding that she was appointed uh, with the anticipation that in future she'll be a CFO um, uh, of the company. Obviously, that led to, to her not taking that position. She was able to institute action and uh, she was compensated accordingly. So she raised issues around uh, race discrimination and gender discrimination. So, Madam Chair, is not everyone, not every female or person with disability uh, would be able to take such measures to ensure that there is redress in terms of their exclusion or the systemic discrimination that exists in the workplace. So we are of the view that there should be measures that are now put in place to ensure that we don't expect everyone to be going for litigation, but there should be empowering provisions that will ensure that the systemic uh, discriminations and inequalities that exist both in the public and the private sector are addressed. And we believe that the starting point um, is this Employment Equity Amendment Bill, which really we find that it is progressive in terms of addressing some of these uh, exclusions that women and persons with disability experience in, uh, in the workplace, particularly in the, in the private sector. 
Now, there are very positive uh, um, provisions in, in, the, in the bill. Uh, we welcome the national minimum wage uh, that is proposed in section one of the, of the amendment. And we also note, uh, Madam Chair, the proposal to have a comprehensive definition of persons with disability. We find this uh, definition to be comprehensive and it covers variety of disabilities. And we found this to be a gap in our investigative hearings where most uh, employees were, were, were reluctant or there was a disinclination to present or rather to, dis to disclose some of their uh, the, the, the disabilities in the workplace. So to recognize all forms of, of disabilities and to have a comprehensive definition, we believe as the commission that it could also assist the, the employers or and even the employees to feel comfortable enough to disclose uh, their disabilities in the workplace. Um, there is also the, the issue of the sectorial targets. Um, as the commission, we, 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 we support um, the inclusion of sectorial targets. Uh, and we believe that it will proliferate the representation of previously disadvantaged groups in various occupational levels. Primarily because, Chair, from, from 1998 to date, the, the, the employers have been given an opportunity uh, to implement or set their own targets to ensure that previously disadvantaged groups are adequately represented in various uh, positions. But as it is now, we know that that is not happening. So we need to have a measure that will ensure that the, the, the private sector particularly is persuaded and pushed to ensure that targets are really met to ensure that women and persons with disabilities enjoy the, the, the fruits that were envisaged by the, the, the drafters of the Employment Equity Act. And that is to ensure that there is equitable representation in various occupational levels. We also note the amendment of section 20 of, of the Act, and we welcome the proposed amendment to the extent that it will provide employers with, with specific targets that need to be achieved. The current format, as I've indicated, um, it permits employers to have their discretion to set their own targets, and we are not getting anywhere. Even when they come before the commission, we ask them about the, the poor representation of, of, of black, uh, black women in, in top management positions. We are all told the same uh, explanation that they are not there or we don't have positions. But what is very interesting is that when you have acting positions where uh, women can be prioritized, and, and, and get the necessary managerial experience, you still find women being excluded in those acting positions and men um, being prioritized in those. And that is done despite their academic qualifications. So we find that that system it, it itself, it demonstrates the, the lack of commitment by, by, by entities or, 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 or employers to, to achieve the aspirations of the Employment Equity Act. We also note, uh, Chair, that the, there is a deletion of paragraph B, which classified employers with uh, fewer than 50 uh, employees who meet the annual turnover of, uh, that is highlighted in Schedule 4 of the Employment Equity Act. Um, it is noted that this is indeed at a, a reducing regulatory burden on small, bus uh, small businesses, rather, in relation to the regulatory provisions. Um, the implication of this is that employers will not be obliged, obviously, those who are no longer designated employers will not be obliged to, to meet sectorial targets. And we have reservations around this. 
uh, to the extent that previously disadvantaged groups of such employers may continue uh, to be underrepresented um, in, in various occupational levels and preferential treatment still be enjoyed by uh, white groups, in, particularly in the, in the private sector. This will therefore, in our view, uh, reverse the minimal gains and progress that has been made to include uh, previously disadvantaged groups in various occupational levels. To this end, uh, we recommend that the employers with fewer than 50 employers who meet the, the 10 over threshold determined in Schedule 4 of the EEA should be retained as designated employees. We also welcome the operation of, or rather the introduction and operation of Section 53 of the Act, which provides that state contracts may be uh, may be used uh, to, to, to ensure that uh, termination of such relationships are made to ensure that private sector do not benefit from state contracts. Uh, it, may, it may raise, obviously, Chair, um, views that this will not be benefit the economy, this will not uh, promote business, but we must look at it also from a perspective that this has been an ongoing process. Um, where now clearly there are systemic uh, uh, discrimination practices that are promoted by the, by the employers. And therefore, there needs to be a compelling measure that will ensure that there is clear commitment to demonstrate a commitment to achieve the aspiration of the Employment Deputy Act. Um, in, in conclusion, Chair, the, the Commission supports the bill in as far as it includes sectorial targets for the purposes of ensuring equitable representation of suitably qualified uh, persons from, from, uh, from designated groups at all occupational level. We believe that with an existing um, uh, legislation that sets a target, both the Employment Equity Commission and the Commission will also progressively realize the, the increase of, of representation of suitably qualified individuals in occupational levels in both the public and the private sector. Madam Chair, I thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Matotoka. Safe to say that you didn't introduce your, your, your colleagues. You did mention that uh, you have got your commissioners with you, but uh, we don't know them. You haven't told us who are they. Will you do that, please? Pardon me, Chair. I'm asking because they may, maybe they, in how, in, in the responding to questions, you would like them to come in, but who are they? I think it's important for record purposes to have thank, them. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Chair, and my, my sincere apologies. I have with me uh, the chairperson of the commission, uh, chairperson uh, Tamara Matebula. Um, I've also known. Can we see her face? Is it possible? Uh, the chair? Is it possible? If it's not possible, fine. Yes, I'm sure mm -hmm. I'll just find out from her. And I'm also having my uh, deputy chair of the commission, uh, Dr. Moleko. And I see her picture. She's here. I'm not sure she's able to show her face. Oh, thank I, you, Dennis. I'm here. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable uh, Dundra. I'm here. Thank you. Flowers. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, Madam Chair, I'm. I also have uh, Commissioner Day uh, with uh, with the delegation today. 
I'm not sure if she's able to show her face. No, okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, honorable members, there is the presentation from the Commission uh, for Gender Equality. Any questions of clarity from honorable members? I see Honorable Mkondo's hand. Any other hand? Okay, and then it will be it will be my hand after Honorable Mkondo. All right, Honorable Mkondo. Honorable Mkondo, over to you. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Chair. Uh, greetings to Mr. Matotoka and uh, his team. Uh, Chair, I have only one question. The, uh, the matter that he is raising of uh, equality in terms of gender and uh, uh, disability, I just want to check as to I just want need clarity as to are they do they pay more focus on the matter of um, persons being adequately and relevantly qualified um, before they push for employment equity? What is that that they are are doing? to ensure that those women and those people with uh, disabilities are adequately uh, qualified, adequately and relevantly qualified. Thanks, Chair, because it mustn't be a matter of compliance. Uh, um, it, it must be a, a matter that they must add, those women must add value to whatever position that uh, 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 they are, uh, promoted to. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Honorable Mkondo. Uh, from my side, just two clarities. One is that in you interacting with uh, with 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 companies, uh, have you have you have you I okay have you picked up or has has it been exposed? to you that there are females that are paid less than males in, in, in workplaces. Secondly is that, would it not be, remember that we are engaged in APL, in, in, in the amendment, and in, in that there are areas where we, we cannot just be general. Is it not, is it not going to be important for you to, to inform us of those companies where you have identified an example that you have made of a of 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 a person who was then told that you are a, a, a an equity whatever with which companies that I'm raising that because and maybe we will be advised by the legal section because it's important for. My question is, is, is based on the fact that we are to know, we, we, when we are amending a law, 
we must not just amend a law by, by being general. We must have facts in front of us so that we are then able to, 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 to apply our minds and, and, and in relation to, to, these, to these amendments. Um, I, 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 I thought I, 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 would ask, I must ask that if, 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 if maybe it's, it's a bit problematic, maybe even from our side, we will then consult with our legal fundis uh, to advise us in, 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 because there are sectors that we know that are more white. And unfortunately, some of them are female dominated. And a sector of that nature, which I, I, I'm aware of, it's a sector of which that deals with cosmetology. That sector is a white, female dominated with females that are employed, but females that are at a, I mean, all of us know, the, we go and do our massage, our pedicures, and whatever. So I'm just I'm just making an example about about that, and 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 us having to to say it's company X. We will don't you think that it's important for us to 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 not to to raise those? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to respond. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, um, Chair. Um, I do welcome the questions. Um, the, the first question from Honorable Mkondo was whether we are considering whether the, rather the suitably qualified criteria when we talk about the advancement of women or persons with disabilities in various occupational levels. Um, my, my response from the, from, from the Commission side is that that is absolutely what we consider. Um, we are not saying um, persons because of their gender, irrespective of their skills, irrespective of their qualifications, ought to be appointed in decision-making positions. That is not what we say. But what we are saying is that there are those who are suitably qualified, having the necessary skills, having the necessary qualifications, but they are excluded, where uh, men are prioritized in terms of, of uh, upward mobility. And I'm giving an example, uh, Madam Chair, that we, we even have it from the Employment Equity Commission's reports for years to, to that recognizes that um, white groups enjoy preferential treatment when it comes to skills training. So if there are, there are limitations experienced by, for example, Black African women to assume uh, a particular managerial levels, but there are skills programs that are there, they also ought to be prioritized for those in the same way that white groups are prioritized. And that is basically what we are saying, that there should, should be a clear intention. There must be an intentional commitment that we want to achieve equity in the workplace. And by so doing, we are going to put specific measures, not only for white groups, but for previously disadvantaged groups. And, and I think it's, it's important that we, we allow women to demonstrate their competency 
to demonstrate their skills and be afforded a fair opportunity the same way that the white males in the private sector enjoy. But we are saying the women equally so should be afforded a fair opportunity and, and demonstrate the, the, their, their leadership skills in various positions. There's a lot of rich, literature around, or rather debate, whether male leadership uh, supersedes those of female leadership. We are not into that space. We are simply saying that with the current situation in, in South Africa now is that there is a clear uh, inadequate representation at top management level, senior management level, and, and the various occupational levels. And the reason is not because of the the, the lack of, 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 of commitment or lack of, or rather the, the, the lack of qualifications. There are qualifications where, where despite those, the, the, the candidates are overlooked for that. The, Madam Chair, you've asked me about the, the specifics in, 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 in terms of whether the, the name of the company. The name of the company I was referring to is called Associated Motor Holdings. Um, this is where Ms. Cohen made, uh, took the, the case to court uh, in 2018, where she was referred to as a female employment equity candidate. So the, the name of the company is Associate Motor Holdings. Madam Chair, we as the Commission, we are currently um, zooming into the mines. There is a mine also called Palabora Mining Company, where we are getting various complaints from, from female uh, um, employees where they allege uh, gender discrimination or rather gender wage gap um, in terms of, of, of uh, employees that are appointed in the same position, performing the same duties and occupying the, 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 the positions of the same value, basically. So we cannot, as the Commission, say that there is no gender wage gap um, in the workplace until we've ascertained so. So we continue to receive such complaints. And as I'm saying, with Palabra Mining Company, it's a visit that we're actually going to be doing this month to go and retrieve the record and do the necessary co uh, comparison to see to the extent which women are, um, um, are prejudiced because of their gender in the workplace. I thank you, Chair. Yes, I see the, the hand of the, of the Deputy Chair. Uh, Dr. Moliko, do you also want to 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 yes, please. Thank you, Honourable Dr. Greetings, colleagues. Can I just ask uh, the organizer if they can just allow me to share slide? I just want to show Honourable Mkondo, just to respond to Honourable Mkondo before I respond to Honourable, uh, in addition to what um, Mr. Madogobo has uh, already issued. If you can just allow me to just share my screen briefly. I just want to share a slide that is analysis that has been done uh, if the Portfolio Committee uh, IT would just enable me to share the slide uh, quickly on the, on the screen. Will uh, uh, Mr. Sakaza, will, will, will Dr. Moluka be able to do that? While he's doing that, can I then just answer your question, Honorable Dunja? Because I know maybe he's just allowing the hosting uh, on, on the side of the uh, can we provide uh, evidence further. I think the critical thing that I picked up on the South African situation, <clears throat> a lot of uh, research has been done on this issue of this gender wage, uh, gender pay gap. Is it real? Is it something that we are purporting and it's not there? Is there, uh, I think, data that actually provides uh, substantiation on this issue? And you're finding that there is data. Uh, the slide that I was going to show also to Honorable Mkondo, which uh, shows you 
Uh, okay, here it is. Thank you. I can share now. Let me just quickly share it with everyone. Here it is. It's just this one slide. This is a slide that StatsSA has released um, on the level of education vis-a-vis -vis the level of earnings by gender. I want to take you to the first, uh, If you, I just want you to understand this slide. So this is independent analysis by StatsSA comparing across education level, all education level, the level of income that uh, individuals in South Africa are earning based on their level of education. Let's just look at the different level. You see here that there's no education, both female and male. This is how much they're earning. This is the primary school education, both female and male have that level. This is how much they're earning. High school, <clears throat> both female and male and the earnings. And so you see with, high, uh, with tertiary institution, and then this is the average of all, including um, across all education level, they have the average here. So what, what StatsSA has found is on average, first and foremost, when none of us have education, despite the gender, you find that females are earning, this is the monthly earning by gender, they're earning 2,102 versus men who are earning 3,903. This is all of them have no education. This is the reality of the gender wage gap. So irrespective of the level of education that you have in this country, if you are female, you may all have no education, but you're earning almost half of what the male is earning. If you go higher to primary and, and high school, primary level, you see here that the 2,286 is earned by the female vis-a-vis -vis the male, almost doubling at 4,099 if they have a higher level of education. The disparity is shown by these bar graphs here. You go to high level of education, high school level, you go to the tertiary. What is surprising is that even when you have more level of schooling, there's a slight gap, this gap remains, but it actually widens as you have more education in South Africa, which is quite disturbing. So you see there that the female earns 17,410 a month, the men earn 27,607. This is the monthly earnings as measured by StatsSA. And you must remember these are average earnings based on the uh, survey that they've collected. Then on average, <clears throat> you're finding that with now the average in South Africa, females earn on average 70% of their male counterparts. As you can see, on average now, this means you've aggregated all of these variables. So I just wanted to show that uh, for the for the house. So the 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 no education the the gap is wide at fifty five percent of of what males are earning. The second thing I just want, which is proving statistically with data that indeed there is a gender wage gap, irrespective of education. You may have no education. You higher you go for education you're seeing that there's an existence of a gender wage gap from statistics essay. So this is independent data that's analyzed. Then I think the second thing, Honorable Dundra, I just want to point out, we've got very progressive uh, laws that South Africa has enacted uh, over the last uh, couple of years. I think that we have noted as CGE that uh, we have seen the employment uh, equity uh, the, in fact, we've got various laws, Employment Equity Act, the Bill of Rights, and the King for Corporate Governance that requires that we don't discriminate and there is equality irrespective of gender. Now, what though the, the national conventions are there, the international declarations are there, but I think it's the practice in South Africa where you're finding that irrespective of education and experience, which is what Honorable Mukondo was asking, and the nature and the context of the work, 
we're finding that analysis is showing that there's actually statistical finding that shows that there is a gender pay gap. I think the structural inequalities point to us trying to understand what could the causes be? And I think this is where the act probably needs to look at. So is it exactly what you're saying about the industry and the sector, about the job type, the more senior people are, the lack of union representation and the abuse of workers that may be at, at the hand when there's non-union representation? Do we find that there's a worsening of this? And you're finding that all of these issues, they do make a difference with respect to uh, pay gap. If there's bargaining councils, if there's ability to have union representativity, if there's ability to have a voice and to be heard, this does affect, even the level of work does affect uh, the outcome in terms of the issue of the pay gap. So it's a very complicated thing. There's a various studies and research that have been done looking at uh, the outcomes of this. But I think the focus on us is one of the things we should probably consider in dealing the pay gap is how do we develop not just the critical skills as Dennis has emphasized, but also how do we deal with the severity of lack of transparency? How do we make sure that we improve transparency in organizations so that if indeed companies are saying, despite your equality in education, we will still pay you the same irrespective of gender. You may find that in a company, individuals, employees are finding that because of the uh, privacy, information is not shared. You may find that same employee, same level, and you're finding some employees are getting paid two to three times higher or a certain percentage higher than their counterpart simply because of the race or the gender or combination of both. And that is an issue that needs to be dealt with from a level of uh, transparency. I think that's an, that's an act and an issue that requires us to look at uh, the openness and the ability to access information and employers making sure that employees can access such information to the level that it's not detrimental uh, to both parties. I also think that companies must publish such information. It should be public information. It shouldn't be hidden, whereby the structure of the acts and the laws in South Africa enable uh, to a large degree information to not be public. And if information is not transparent, it enables this type of information. I think the third is that uh, audits of this type of uh, behavior, where we do audits, and I think CGE could have a, a role to, to play, uh, despite our limited budget, where we partner with uh, the Department of Labor, where audits are done to look at, is there indeed equal pay, given equal level of work experience and equal level of education? Uh, particularly in sectors which are predominantly finding such problems. So I think that you are correct to say we've got to have evidence-based assertion that we make. I do believe that there are some sectors where some research has been done where it's incrementally a problem, particularly male-dominated sectors, industrial sectors, STEM-related sectors, where you're finding science, technology, engineering, construction, where these gaps persist much more so than in services sectors. And there's reasons for that because of factual or, or what we call uh, determinants in those subsectors uh, that drive these higher. So I'm just pointing to some of these and I think it will help us in terms of dealing with the amendments that we need to probably make to look at issues of transparency, to look at issues of public audits and audits and making information publicly available regularly and making sure that uh, these are done by the Department of Labor and making sure that it's a norm um, and it's, it's not done as, a, as, a, as something that is um, out of the ordinary. 
Uh, thank you, Chair. I think those are my points uh, for now. No, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mluka. Unfortunately, the, 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 the media section of Parliament has complained that uh, your video was off, so they couldn't see you. I see there's somebody's hand uh, by the name of Tamara. Is 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 that uh, part of the committee? Is that person part of the of the commissioners, uh, Mister? Uh, yes, uh, chair. That is the chair of the the commission, Tamara Matebu. Can you. she? Can will she then be able to? Uh, uh, she must. We must see her face. Uh, Ms. Chairperson of the CGE, over to you. And can you please switch on your video? Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Over to you. You are muted. Can you unmute yourself? Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Chair um, of the Portfolio Committee, and uh, greetings to members of the Portfolio Committee and the public at large. What else can you ask? Yo, yo, yo. I think they say it. Okay. Yes, yeah. there we go. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for the opportunity and, and invite to come and present. Your last question, Chair, which was question number three, where you asked about um, openness and transparency in terms of the companies that we engaged as the Commission for Gender Equality. Um, Chair, I must say that, um, yes, the Commission for Gender Equality each year would actually pick up, handpick um, the organizations, either private sector companies or public sector companies uh, that we will um, engage and conduct our transformation investigations as well as our transformation hearings. I will just make reference to the companies that we picked up in 2016, 2017, for an example, um, and that we engaged. And, and, and I'm quite uh, aware that we are interested in the private sector companies that we, we, we deal or we have dealt with. And the purpose of our work, uh, basically, Chair, is to make sure that when we engage these companies, there's quite a lot of work um, that we look at, and, and, the, and the aim of the hearings is, is to assess the impact of the employment equity and, and, and look at the private sector and whether these private sector are accountable or are compliant with the legislations. And the Commission concedes that it's easier to transform companies in terms of race, but it's very difficult to transform companies in terms of gender. Um, the hearings basically are part of, um, you know, spaces where we actually make sure that there is awareness raising around national legislations, relevant international commitments. And I must quickly just go to the list chair. For an example, in 2016, 2017, that financial year, we actually looked at small as well as big private sector companies. Amongst those companies, chair, we were looking, we looked at the Mercedes-Benz of South Africa. We looked at pick and pay. We looked at Rose Food Group. We looked at the five big construction companies. We looked at Tiger Brands. We looked at Fermule and Build It, which is based in Free State. We looked at SABC Miller, the Cloppers, the Sasol, the OVK, the Holland Sons, 
the Mafi King Toyota, um, and the Johnson Work War. This is just to mention very few that we picked up uh, for that particular financial year, Chairperson, uh, but I think uh, we actually dealt with more than a dozen, more than 12 uh, private sector companies that we worked with uh, during the financial year. And Chairperson, I must also say that one of the things that we ascertained was to actually look at the vulnerabilities and the risks experienced by women and people or persons with disabilities across the sector, especially um, you know, how they are able to actually move up the ladder in terms of making sure that they, the skills, they are upskilled and they are able to actually occupy positions uh, at a higher managerial level. And finally, Chair, from my side, I just want to say that we did identify some challenges uh, that are, are, are encountered generally by the private sector companies. And, and some of those are really um, um, you know, issues that are looking at um, the inability of the private sector to actually achieve equity targets for women as well as persons with disabilities. And again, there are legislations that are out there, but you will find that the public sector companies are aware of those legislations. But the implementation thereof is one of the challenging areas, especially for public, public sector companies. And, 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 and generally, um, I can say that um, we, as the Commission for Gender Equality, we are continuously making follow-ups just to make sure that we look at how those companies that we have engaged are able to assess themselves and measure themselves in terms of uh, achieving gender transformation and achieving race and achieving disability targets that have been set. And I must also say that uh, Chair, some, most of our findings have been shared with the Employment Equity Commission as well as the Department of Labor. So that's basically our work. And this is the work that we are continuously doing every financial year. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, 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 Chair, and, uh, and 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 your team. I I I think I'm not. I, I just want to check if there are any uh, uh, questions from 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 honourable members. By the looks, it's it's not. Uh, uh, from my side, I will humbly request that. Uh, I think you did uh, mention that. Uh, there are there are there are workplaces where there is a practice of male uh, 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 getting more salaries than you mentioned only one which was mining. Is it possible for you to to which other sector is having is 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 is, is, is having that so that if you you don't have those now we will then as the committee request that if that, that can be uh, circulated to the committee secretary, Mr. Sakaza, uh, for him to, for us just to have that, uh, that, uh, that, 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 that brief. And, uh, and uh, no, thank you very much. It's quite an interesting uh, uh, presentation and responses. But if, if you, do you allow Members of the of the of the of, of the committee, the citizenry, to to say to you like a whistleblower, can you please go and look into this sector? It is it has got some red lights, 
in terms of, uh, of, of, of employment equity. Should a person do that in writing or can a person just pick up a phone and, and say, can this company be called or this sector be called in front of you as the gender commission to, 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 to clarify some of the practices that they, they're having and why they're not implementing the acts that are there. Can a person do that? Chair, uh, whoever can respond, or your deputy, or Mr. Matotoka. Whoever. Yes, I'll come in after you, Dennis. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, actually, I wanted to, uh, to request uh, my chair or the deputy chair to, to come in on that. Uh, largely, we do we do uh, get complaints. We allow people to walk in our offices and, and lodge complaints. Uh, but specifically on this question, I just wanted to request my deputy chair to just come in on this one and advise. Thank you, chair. Thank you, Honorable Duntra. Sorry, there's something, my video, uh, it's showing the, the image, but they seem to be, yeah. <laughs> There seems to be a, a problem, it goes on and off. But I think, at Honorable Dundra, you are correct that the recourse, the recourse for non-compliance is what is a problem. And I think that given our mandate, we're able to at least oversee and monitor if recourse is appropriate and measurable to the level of discrimination that occurs. The second thing is that, is there appropriate sanction for non-compliance? So with the Commission of Employment Equity, when they do the analysis of reporting of transformation targets um, and penalties for non-compliance, the failure to reach the mandated targets and the penalties, what we're seeing is that it's not commensurate to change their behavior. So this is where then the act and the bills need to look at, is the fine and the commensurate uh, I would say harsh action or uh, response adequate in line with the um, behavior of, of companies and corporates. And, and, and what you are seeing is that it's unlikely to be sufficient. It's not adequate. And I think this is where the bill and the, uh, and the, and the, and the amendments to the bill need to look at how do you make sure that the mitigation action or the recourse is actually a deterrent for future gender wage gap, for future uh, discrimination, where there is equality in terms of work experience and uh, uh, qualification and all the other type of uh, indices that you would measure to determine a salary or compensation of uh, your staff. So this is where I think we need to put greater emphasis on the recourse because we do come with findings. We do come with uh, uh, outcomes, as Chairperson has said, that company X, company Y, we look at broader issues around gender equality and not just gender wage gap, but for the gender wage gap, you can look at uh, doing pay orders because you actually need to look at data and look at the level of qualification as Honorable Kondo has said, and look at the level of em employment and work experience and other factors that determine uh, uh, these, um, these outcomes. But even having looked at those, you will find that there is this outcome. So I think this, the, sec the third thing that I think we as the Gender Commission could potentially look at is looking at working in particular, emphasizing, emphasizing our partnership with the Department of Labor and emphasizing our partnership with the Commission of Employment Equity, wherein there are uh, discrepancies. Because 
uh, ours goes only so far in according to the CG Act, but we can definitely work in partnership and make sure that uh, not only the recourse, but the legislation speaks to harsher sanctions to try and quell this behavior and also forcing uh, transparency to try and enable that people have access to information to prevent this type of um, incidences. And I think it's, it's in line with the regulatory amendments that uh, the committee is trying to, to try and hear from people like us. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Malikwa. And, uh, and, and thank you very much, Chair uh, of the, of, of the, of the uh, CGE. It's, uh, we will then now, uh, I want to propose, honorable members, uh, that we, we have a, a break. Uh, now it's, it's quarter to one, we come back at quarter past one so that we get a, a presentation from, from, from the, 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 the next presentation. And please, I would advise uh, people not to log off, not unless they are going to be able to log in again. And I just want to check from Mr. Sakaza if we will then be, if we do log out, will we be using the same, the same uh, 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 link? Uh, link? Yes, Chair. Yes, Chair. If, if people want to log out, they can log out, but they must please log in again with the same link. Um, from my side, I'm not going to end the meeting. I'll just uh, pause it, the recording, but uh, then I will again at quarter past one. Uh, but if one they leave, they can leave, but uh, they will use the same uh, link, Chair. Okay. We'll be back at quarter past one, uh, honorable members and our guests. Uh, let's meet at quarter past one, just get something and a let scratch, and then we get the next presentation. Thank you very much. See you at quarter past one. Thanks, Chen.